podcast has bad words. <laughs> You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast. We're here with TK Coleman. We're going to talk about the symbiosis of love. Oh, we're going to answer a bunch of surprise questions. But first, we have this question from Tim. You want to read that question at the top, Ryan? Yeah. What do you guys disagree about? Well, I'm about to tell you. <laughs> we don't disagree about anything. <laughs> yes, we do. No, we don't. We, we, we disagree. Spit all over your mic. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I want to go first. That's free. Okay. We, we disagree about what we disagree on. Ooh. Oh. Ooh. I, I had a dream the other night that TK and I were writing a book because you... you uh, Jordan mentioned this book to me the other day, but it's something I'm familiar with. You know, the four, dis- the four agreements. I, I dreamt that we were writing a book called The Four Disagreements. This oh, be good. wow. We should do that. That's good. <laughs> what do we disagree on? We disagree on the vaccination. We do. Uh, well, I don't know that we disagree on that so much. No, I don't. Maybe we, we, we disagree do. on some po- political stuff. Actually, maybe we don't disagree on the vaccination. Yeah. And the political we're stuff are pretty. It's funny because, like, we agree on the result, it's the way to get to the result. Sometimes I feel like Ryan just enjoys disagreeing with me. I do not. <laughs> Wait, so so Josh believes the vaccine is the mark of the beast. You believe it's actually going to help. Um, he believes we'd all be dead without I, it. I believe I believe that the vaccine is pretty benign. Yeah. Uh, for the exception of like, I'm sure there's going to be, you know, there's, there's always an exception to the role. There's going to be some exceptions where people are like, oh, no, I grew a third arm or. I lost my vision, whatever it is. But by and large, I am on the side. Dude, my wife and I got the vaccine. Like I, 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 uh, yeah, and I'm fine. I did, I did have some body aches. Everything that they said was going to happen, happened with the side effects, but it was all temporary. And, and right now I'm, I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have any beliefs around it. Like I, I I don't know enough about it to have any, any uh, beliefs, thankfully. So the list continues. Well, you know, here's what I have here. This is a a tweet from TK Coleman. Mm. You can follow him (laughs) at TK underscore Coleman. (laughs) If no one ever thinks you're losing, then you're probably not winning Mm. to which I responded on Twitter. The desire to win is a mental illness. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, to which he responds with, I think it would be more accurate to put it this way. The compulsive desire to win for the sake of winning or dominate games you don't enjoy playing is a mental illness. The creative desire to win games you enjoy playing is a natural, healthy human practice. And I responded with, Replace natural, healthy human with societal, and we're on the same page. Oh. As in, um, the creative desire to win games you enjoy playing is a societal practice. Mm. Either way, sounds like a solid discussion for our podcast recording this mm. week. <laughs> so let's start there. Um, the, we, the worst part, though, is he responded to my tweet, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. My tweet got maybe like eight likes or something. Yeah. His, his owning me, like... Yeah, that's a mis- mental illness. Got like 50 likes. Right. 80 retweets. I was so mad. Oh, man. Dude, you got to stop counting the tweets and, or the, yeah, the retweets and the likes, man. I had the no idea. to win. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah right. Uh oh. Uh oh. So, so here's, here's what we, where we get into trouble with this. People often will hear when I say mental illness, they hear bad. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying the desire to win is bad. I'm saying it's inherently a mental illness. It's not a human thing. 
Mm-hmm. We don't have a desire to win. It's a societal invention. It's a concoction. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's evil. I'm not even saying it's not preferable. I have a mental illness. It's called obsessive compulsive disorder. It yeah. is a mental illness. And um, and so for someone to say having a mental illness is bad, I would say, well, fuck you. Because uh, no, it's not. I have one that I would prefer to, ki- to keep, actually. Mm. It's one that's been incredibly beneficial to me. Mm. Although it sometimes creates some misery in my life. Like 50 ulcers. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, what you yes. say about mental illness is exactly how I feel about the word when. Uh-huh. Right? I, I feel like when I use the word when... I, I don't mean something that is inherently compulsive mm-hmm. or that is based on the need to compensate. For me, the term win is relatively neutral. It's a descriptive term. Mm-hmm. There, there are unhealthy attitudes you can have about winning. There are healthy attitudes you can have about winning. So how you feel about mental illness, that's how I feel about winning. So, but, but before we get into it, <laughs> just the point of the tweet. I thought we were already tra- into it. I know, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> but just, just the point of the tweet, what, what, I, what I was trying to convey is that Whenever you are seeking to make progress in any area of life, there will always be people who are looking at your progress as if it's a form of regress. Mm. You will never escape criticism in life. You will never escape misunderstanding in life. And if mm. you've got an area of your life where you want to make changes, you want to you want to live healthier, you want to do things to become happier, there are always going to be people who are looking at you or talking about you like, man, whatever happened to Ryan? Right. Yeah. Whatever happened to Josh? Like, what, what what's up with this minimalism thing? Especially you know? when you're doing meaningful work. Exactly. Especially when you're doing meaningful work. And, and what I'm saying to people is actually when that occurs, that's evidence that you are doing meaningful work. That's evidence that you are opting out of groupthink and that you are doing something that challenges people to be cautious, to be mm-hmm. mindful. And that's why they're giving you that kind of criticism. So that was the intention. But then we got into the, the sidebar on win. And I, I like to continue talking <laughs> well, about well, that. Well, let's talk about win for a second yeah. because- you've redefined the word win. Like Ryan and I often will redefine success, for example. I think success in the societal sense is always failure because success is success as defined by society always involves metrics, which is a type of chase. Chase is uh, attachment. Attachment is misery. Misery is failure. It's just a mathematical equation at this point. Winning is the same thing. He right. just lays it out. That that's how it is, and we can just move forward with this fact. TK, well, if, if you want to just play around and make words mean whatever you want right, them to mean, right, right, fine. Right. I'm yeah. okay with yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. No, I, 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 let's go with this mathematical equation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, see, I told you he likes to disagree with me just for the sake of disagreeing. Um, well, privately, though, as soon as we turn the mics off, he's like, "Yeah, you're right about that." <laughs> TK, there's, there's nothing wrong with you being mentally ill. Right, 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 exactly. No, there's no value judgment here. No, seriously, there isn't anything wrong with you being mentally ill. But like, we're Here's the thing. We're all mentally ill. Let's oh, yeah. be clear about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of so, when we talk about mental ill, we, we often talk about like my father. My father was a paranoid schizophrenic. He had elaborate relationships with people who did not exist in the real world. He thought they did exist. That's often what we talk about when we're talking about mental illness. But I, I, what I'm saying is that we've all bought into some, some societal notions, especially with respect to winning. In society, to win means others have to lose. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go back and look at, say, Native peoples like uh, uh, American Indian traditions, you you start to understand that, well, they look at winning a little bit differently. That they look at, well, if I win, then everyone in my community wins. Mm-hmm. If I lose, or if you lose, then I lose. Yeah. If we're if we're in the same community. Right now, that's a different sort of uh, approach to winning. And if that's what we're talking about, I think 
amen to that. Unfortunately, what we're often talking about, we're talking about winning. We're talking about competition mm. in which it's a zero-sum game. And therefore, it is, in order for me to win, someone else has to lose. Now, you see the, the typical example of this is in sports, and that's fine. That's a, a benign example, right? It's right. like, oh, I, you know, the Jazz lost to the Chicago Bulls in 1998. I get that. Right, and it still gets to you this day. Yes. Which actually might even be a uh, symptom of like, it is a mental illness yes. because it's still yeah. messing with you. Thirty years later, yes. Yeah, Forty years later, I just want to oh point out God. that if, if, if fifty yeah. years later, if John Stockton has six championships, he might have a different attitude towards winning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, let's let's kidding. be clear: John Stockton is a better basketball player than Michael Jordan. <laughs> Michael Jordan played on a better team, We're, so we can be clear about this. <laughs> Could you imagine if they're on a team together? Oh my God! Yeah, no, yeah. amazing. Yeah. Anyway, that's what my my thoughts on winning. That's the truth about winning. There's nothing else to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to. Uh, I, I want to acknowledge something real quick. This month, right now, it is Jordan's three-year anniversary with the Minimalist. Oh Round of applause, God. ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Yeah, man, the time has flown by. Awesome. Congrats, Jordan. Um, it has been three what years. What else do we disagree about? Wait, Let's talk about other win? Like, oh, I thought we were uh, done with that. No, no. Well, yeah, I mean, you just stepped on Jordan's moment. It's cool. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were done with Jordan and I thought you were done with the winning, but let's, 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 let's uh, keep going with Jordan's moment. Go ahead. All right. So anyway, it's been three years for Jordan. <laughs> Time has flown by. We could not have done any of this without him. He's amazing. All right. Now can we move on? Uh -huh. <laughs> and speaking of Jordan, there's also a Michael Jordan who was a huge winner. Yeah. <laughs> and he's miserable. <laughs> the speaking end. of winning. I still haven't seen that docu that docuseries yet. I mean, just... I, I loved it. But let's not... Right. We'll, we'll, if we start discussing MJ, yeah. we'll, we'll be gone. We'll do, be do, we, do we have anything else? We want to, I mean, I felt like we did cover the winning thing. I don't want to belabor the thing. We have a million no. things to cover here yeah. today. Keep talking about... If you have anything to add on the winning thing, go for it. Yes. So I, I don't think I'm like redefining the term winning or using it in some esoteric way. I think I'm what I'm bringing to the table on the discussion of winning is that it has always been understood to be a broad term that people can have both unhealthy and healthy relationships with. So winning is is a term that occurs within the context of fights and games um, where you deal with obstacles or opposition, whether it's voluntary or involuntary. And games have been around as long as there have been human beings. Like whenever we have free time, Whenever, whenever we are not focused on survival, we create arbitrary obstacles yes. in order to test our strength to see if we can overcome them. And we create games. Mm. And, and, and we typically understand winning to be the overcoming of an obstacle for the sake of attaining some desired outcome, for the sake of achieving some kind of goal. And, and that's, something that, that's something that can bring a lot of joy to people. And that's something that can bring a lot of misery to people. And I think where we have to be careful with having a principle that says the desire to win is a mental illness is that we, we end up using dogmas to as a basis for dismissing what people say about their own experience. So here's what I mean. If somebody tells me, TK, I'm really into competitive sports and it just makes me miserable and drains my energy, I'm going to listen to what they say and learn from it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say, no, 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 man. Winning is healthy. That's the maxim. Therefore, you must not understand something about how to play the game. I'm going to yeah. take their experience seriously. On the other hand, if someone tells me, 
man, like I love playing Monopoly with my family and we're like super competitive and we talk trash to each other all the time. Mm -hmm. And every Saturday night we play and sometimes I lose, sometimes I win, but it's always fun. Mm -hmm. And when we leave that, we go do something else and have a great time. And we just love being competitive and we get energized by mm -hmm. it. I'm not going to say, well, there must be something you're misunderstanding because winning is a mental illness. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm going to learn from that experience and say, clearly there are some people who experience winning in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who experience it in an unhealthy way. And, 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 and we shouldn't sort of use these kinds of ideas to say that it is the desire to do it is a mental illness. I, I think that's an important thing. Also, I think when it comes to dealing with challenges in life, for me, it's very important that, you know, when, when we leave this kind of setting where, where we're philosophizing about life and, and we're in the heat of a real challenge, there are certain understandings to the concept of win that matter to me. Suppose I'm dealing with some kind of opposition and I'm in a fight for my life. Let's say it's life or death, right? Let's say someone's trying to take my life. Someone's, yeah. trying, to, someone's trying to harm me. Someone mm -hmm. puts their hand on my body and it doesn't belong there. And I'm in a situation where I have a desired outcome to mm. survive, to live, mm -hmm. to get out of this situation. And whether I like being in fights or not, I am in a fight. If I lose this fight, I lose my life. If I win this fight, I live to see another day. My desire to win is not a mental illness. My mm. desire to win mm -hmm. is a survival instinct that has kept our species around for a long time. Mm. So we have to be nuanced with these things and, and consider the context of games and fights where the term winning derives its meaning. And I don't sure. think it's all bad or all good. I don't think it's bad or good. Yeah. Uh, it, it, There's it, no value judgment. If you or, take the or, value or, judgment away from winning, mm -hmm. if you take the value judgment away from mental illness, then it, it, it really helps, I think, for me, it helps this conversation because uh, there is no good or bad here. It's just... It just is. Right. And I want to be clear yeah. about this too. I didn't say winning is a mental illness. Right, right. The desire right. to win. Yeah. yeah. And, and so really what we're talking about is the desire to beat others. And, and when, in our but, but what about non-zero-sum games though? Right. I'm saying in our yeah. culture, yeah. in society, our culture is telling us that to win, they must lose. Yes. And it otherizes people. Yeah. Right? That's a limited concept. Let's, let's look at it. Yes. Well, let's look at it with politics because that's what makes me think of. We're in the state. Speaking of places we disagree. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we don't even disagree that much. But here's the thing about politics is right now we have this like blue versus red and you feel like you have to pick one team or the other because one of those teams is out to be the next fascist regime or communist regime. Both sides accuse each other of it. Uh, but the problem is, is when you look at like this last election and you can look at that that side, the red side, and say, yeah, they lost. Hey, this is America. Mm -hmm. The United States of America. We all lost. We're all losing right now. Mm. And in 2016, you got the red side saying, yeah, look at them Democrats. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Hillary lost. Well, guess what? We all are losing right now. Mm. And that's what that's what the mental illness makes me think of, or, or that that viewpoint, is that right now we we have it, this this idea of winning and losing to the point where it's like it's really dividing our country a lot. Yes. Yeah. And and, and I want to I want to parse out a few things because TK brought up a really I enjoyed I enjoy the Hunger Games too. <laughs> <laughs> it's his favorite libertarian film. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, there's this new libertarian film that just came out. Did you hear about it? it's called The Forever Purge? <laughs> yeah. I love the idea of government being like, "All right, we're going to take a break and not be involved in your lives." Oh like, that's a horror movie. Purge. I love it. Is that a sequel to The Purge? 
Yeah, it's the fifth film in the yeah. series. Yes. Oh wow. Um, okay. The the first one is is was quite good. The one with Ethan Hawke. Um, I think I saw one the Election Day one, and I mean they're funny like little popcorn movies, and it's it's uh, okay. It's actually an interesting thought experiment. I think I'm gonna go see the Forever Purge in a theater just popcorn. For fun. I've never yeah, heard. I don't, don't want to give my oh, take popcorn. on Forever Purge because I don't want to be sued by the producers. <laughs> well, let, let me let me. So you you made a distinction here. You uh, you talked about. Um, in being in a fight for your life, that's not a desire to win. Let's be clear about that. That's a desire to live. Um, and, and, and so the thing, I, I think the reason the illustration is so important is we're now treating politics, for example, as though it's a fight for our life. Now, you know better in terms of like, oh, if I pull the lever for this person versus this person, uh, that's the fight. From, but some people actually think that this is a a, a fight for our lives. So maybe you could help help some people who are listening to this make that distinction. Yeah. Because what we're often doing. Uh, let me let me just uh, let me illustrate it with this one thing. I know I, I gave this example a few weeks ago, but it, uh, you don't know about it. I've been watching videos of the Hadza, the last remaining human beings on Earth. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, they're they're in Tanzania. There's only about 1,500 Hadza left, the hunter gatherers, and and they asked one of the chiefs. They they asked him like, Hey, um, what what do what are your people most afraid of? And you ask that in our society. And he was like, Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> you would get answers like that, right? Yeah, yeah. You, especially on Twitter. You Republicans. Would definitely get answers. Yeah. 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 You, you would hear that. But he paused for a moment very, very just sort of consciously, intentionally, deliberately made this pause. And he looks up and he goes, lions. But you repeat myself. Yeah. That, <laughs> that's what... That's what they're most afraid of. And then he pauses for another moment. He goes, and elephants. Mm. And you realize <laughs> that, yes, that. there are legitimate fears fighting for your life. Yeah. That's why they're afraid of a lion, because it would be a fight for their life, right? Yeah. And we've turned that same fight into over being overly neurotic about everything. And I'm, mm, yeah. I'm the number one sort of victim of this. I, I do it all the time. Yeah. I, I blow things out of proportion. Mm. Yeah, so with fights and games... There are degrees of intensity. There are degrees of importance that we can attribute to them. And it is very easy for people to treat every fight and every game as if it's a matter of life and death. And you can be sure people don't just do that with politics. There are people who do that with sports. You know, I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. And I, and I think about the so-called curse that, that existed on the Cubs for uh, roughly a century. And I remember when we had that playoff series against the Florida Marlins. And that was the closest we got before the the recent World Series win. Yeah. And the uh, you know the the one guy in the audience catches the ball, or or like he goes for the ball mm -hmm. when 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 it was debatable that the Cubs could have gotten an out at that moment. Yes. That guy's life has never been the same since. They've ruined it. Um. In many ways, because fans were so angry about this, and I get it. You know, a World Series in a certain context is very important but it's not important enough to threaten another person's life. It's not important enough to say, let's all get together and kill this guy. Security had to usher that guy out of the, the stadium, out of, out of Wrigley Field, because people were so angry at him. You know, and, and so we have moments like that that remind us that we do have this ability to take things too far. And, and I think that's what you're speaking to. The, the desire to win when it leads to stuff like that is an indicator that we don't have a healthy relationship to this desire that we have to play games or to compete and things like that. But with that being said, I, I still think it's true that there are people 
I, I, and the reason I'm saying this because I'm one of them, like this is how I would report my experience, that enjoy competitive games. Yeah. And they find those competitive games to be very nourishing, uh-huh. to be very life-giving. Um, and I, 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 I just think it's it's one of those things where it's not a kind of either or sort of thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, and it's not about either or, right? It, it's, it's what I'm trying to illustrate is the desire to beat other people in something is creating a lot of misery in the world. And so I think that's where we can sort of form a detente here and all agree that our desire, which has been propagated by society for a long time, and we have all experienced it. We still experience it. I mean, I beat you in the Twitter war, right? With more retweets. (laughs) I think think part of the problem there is that... I actually didn't even know until he said that, by the way. (laughs) Oh, shoot. I think part of the problem there is that we're we're trying to win based on unquestioned assumptions. So it's one thing if Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather get together and say, hey, let's make an agreement. You and I are going to collaborate on a project. We're going to make a lot of money mm-hmm. by trying to beat each other in a boxing contest. Mm-hmm. And at the end, we're going to have a lot of fun, but we're going to talk a whole lot of smack leading up to it. We're going to hug at the end and say only positive things about the end and then go have a beer together when it's over. Okay, mm-hmm. But let's have a contest where I try to beat you and you try to beat me. I'm mm-hmm. gonna literally try to knock your head off and you're gonna try to do the same thing. I think those guys had a good time all the way through. Yeah. And I don't think Conor McGregor losing cares at all. His life is better in just about every way as a result of losing to Floyd Mayweather. Mm-hmm. That's different, however, than me being on Twitter and someone saying, hey, I disagree with your tweet. And then I am entering into a, um, a form of engagement that's based on assumptions about winning. I'm seeing this interaction as a contest. And I think what happens a lot is we contextualize our interactions with other people as a contest without their agreement. You know? So it's, we treat it like, oh, I'm Conor McGregor and you're Floyd Mayweather when we haven't had the talk that those two had together, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's like, okay, is there another way for us to interact without treating this as a contest? Uh-huh. And if there is, when we, it, it would be useful for us to entertain the possibilities of that rather than just treating everything like a fight or a game. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like we literally have the the minimalist game, the men's game, mm-hmm. where we have injected some friendly competition. Yes. So certainly like yeah. there is some friendly competition that's out there. You can see more about that at the minimalists.com forward slash game. Yes. <laughs> but l- let me let me add, add this because I think that if what you're saying is true, that Conor McGregor didn't care that he lost, then he didn't have a desire to win because you can't have one without the other, right? Um, and, and so, so which is fine. I think he was just playing a different game. I think he did. I think he won the game that he was playing. Okay. I, I think the game that he was playing was the make more money in a single fight than I've ever made in my entire MMA career game. Mm-hmm. I also think the game that he was playing is all I got to do is last go the distance with Floyd and not get knocked out. And because the standards are low for me, everyone's going to treat it like I won anyway. He has to knock me out. I just have to not get knocked out. Right. And, and I think that was the game that he was playing. And so he won that game, mm. which is why he didn't matter. It didn't matter to him that he lost the game that, you know, Floyd was playing. Mm. Right. Yeah. yeah. So different people playing different games. Yeah. Everyone can win in that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Uh, yeah, if, if I'm playing basketball and you're playing tennis, but we're on a soccer field, then all of a sudden we're just going to, well, that really illustrates the mental illness behind winning. And, and, and that can be, that can be a healthy approach to life, right? So going back to the original tweet, when other people look at you as a loser, 
understand that's because they're evaluating you based on a game that they think you should be playing rather than the games that bring you joy. Focus on the games that bring you joy, not on the judgments that people make about you because of the games that they think you ought to prioritize. Yeah. It's funny when Josh read that tweet, the first thing I thought about were parents who put pressure on their children to play sports that they wish they would have played when they were kids. Yeah. So then all of a sudden now the kids care about it because the parents care about it, mm-hmm. but they don't really love the game. They just, they want their parents approval. Um, but yeah. I think you can broaden that example to what, what you're talking about here. I also think there's a, there's a place in which competition see Kapil Gupta when he talks about competition he often talks about if you're actually competing about someone you're not elite you're not if you're competing with someone you're not elite at what you do Mm. yeah um like and so I think with that hypothesis uh, Floyd Mayweather is rarely ever competing you know because he was so leaps and bounds above anyone else in that sport it wasn't really a competition it was him performing at an elite level and the other people were competing against him and he may have not ever been competing then now i don't want to get bogged down in in definitions semantics all the other stuff the words can mean whatever you want them to mean Uh, and so but what i do want to illustrate is that sometimes if you're truly performing, I think of, of Michael Jordan is a great example of this, that when he was performing at his best, it was it was art in a way. Yeah. And it wasn't competition. When he wasn't when he was just a notch below his best, that's when you saw the misery in him. And it's I think when you saw the competition in him as well. And he mistreated people, which we, Steve Jobs is this way as well, right? Yeah. I saw a video recently pop yeah. up on my YouTube. They, someone called him the perfect minimalist. I'm like, well, he was the perfect asshole. Right. And he was also a minimalist. Mm. Yeah. But but I, I think we, we get confused. Mm. And we, when when Jordan is in the flow state, the tongue is out of his mouth and he's, you yeah, know, yeah. soaring the through the air. Yeah. yeah. There's no competition there. There's no winning. There's no desire to win. There's no avoidance of losing either. It's pure performance. It's art. It's an artistic mm. expression of humanity. And, and so in the other times, because he's been infected by the influenza of society that he has, for which there is no vaccine, <laughs> he, he at times would compete and try to win. And that's when you saw the misery come out and and not just jordan but anyone who, who do else who does that you can see yeah. moments of pure performance yeah and it's not competition it's something else yeah. it's otherworldly i heard yeah. the martial artist jet lee mm, i could see that say that uh he, he was talking about no martial art is that there's no right or wrong about martial arts right and, and and someone said okay well then why do you fight against other people and he said because competition is a process of discovery mm. um by by facing the strength of another we learn to discover and use the strength that's in ourselves. Ooh, yeah. mm. I like I like that because I can think of like certain things. Oh man, I can't think of something specific, but something I thought I was really good at, and then I start to like play someone else at this game, and I'm like, oh wow, like yes. I have a long way to go. I'm not nearly as good as I thought. Yes, yeah, mm. no, yeah, I, it's the the competition, the edging someone out. There's no real elite performance in that. It's like, well, how elite are you if you won by an inch, right? Yeah. But if you're Floyd Mayweather and you won 50 fights and I think you, he had been hit once or twice, mm-hmm. ever, and you're like, oh, okay. Right. That, that's, that's something different, right? Uh, yeah, we mentioned Bill Russell. At the, compared to everyone he was playing with, with, against at the time, 
he was truly elite. You know, the 11 rings is like, no one's ever going to top that in our lifetime, probably. No. Yeah, right? probably not. Yeah, unless uh, LeBron is able to keep getting the growth hormones that he needs or whatever. Uh, I mean, he's got to focus on just winning another ring. <laughs> well, let's read some more about less. Here's an excerpt from Love People Use Things. It is our new book. It is out right now. You can check it out. Hardcover, audiobook, ebook, local indie bookshop, your local library, other stores, etc. This is from the relationship with people chapter. It's my favorite chapter in the book. So in the book, we talk about healing the seven essential relationships in our life. We talk about some virtues. We talk about how to understand other people. And, and Ryan and I go into depth about appreciating people, respecting people, etc. Some sort of virtues that are in our life. But then there are these other things that we perceive to be virtuous in our society. But we like to argue that they are overrated virtues. These are called the 13 overrated virtues. This is from page 275. Now that we've surveyed the most pertinent qualities of worthwhile relationships, we must also consider the virtues we've been acculturated to believe are noble, but are often overrated. First one is loyalty. Yes, it is important to be loyal to loved ones, but loyalty alone is typically misguided and may even degrade your relationships by creating a smoke a smokescreen between rationality and reality. Being loyal is fine, but loyalty at the expense of integrity is detrimental to a relationship. Mm. TK, let's talk about loyalty for a second because quite often in many cultures, we, we hold it up as like, the number one virtue so much so that we sometimes get blinded by yeah. either being loyal or the need for loyalty, unearned loyalty from other people. And sometimes we manipulate the people in our lives through unfounded appeals to loyalty. Ooh. Come on, man. We grew up together. Yeah. We're family. We're family. Yeah. We, we, we have <sighs> DNA commonalities. We went to school together. How long have I been knowing you? And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's nothing about, me having known you for 10 years or you having grown up in the same neighborhood as me, that in and of itself means that I need to give you whatever you're asking or I need to make whatever sacrifice you're making. It's kind of like when people say things like, yeah, I went to high school with, with Tom Hanks. Yeah, I, I went to high school with George Clooney. It's like, OK, that's great that you all went to the same school, mm -hmm. but there's nothing about going to the same school that means that you have the same destiny, the same lifestyle, the same discipline. So to think, yeah, yeah man, that could have been me. Me and George Clooney went to the same school. No, that couldn't have been you. Right. right. Because George Clooney didn't make it as an actor because he grew up in that neighborhood and went to that school. It's because he applied himself to a kind of discipline yeah. that other people at that school didn't apply to, didn't apply in their lives. So anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a tool that we can use to manipulate others. And sometimes we might manipulate people this way with the best of intentions. Mm. We may not even know that we're doing it. And so um, I, I think it's not just a one-way thing. It's not just something that people do to us, but we do it to them as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think about, uh, and I'm trying to decide if, I guess it's the private podcast. So my sister and brother, um, this was years ago, they were visiting in Montana with some other family members, but they're on the couch. And they're having this conversation and my sister says something like, oh, I just, I love that we're family because that means I can just talk to you however I want and you have to love me. And I'm like, you guys are insane. <sighs> like we use this, 
we use this idea of loyalty to take advantage mm. to to hold people to a different standard when really you really should use that that family at to put some to to treat someone better like to go out of your way yeah because i even said to my brother i'm like hey look man like i'm telling you i have friends who treat me better than you do he's like yeah but we're family i'm like yeah so doesn't that doesn't it make sense that you would use the excuse of family to treat me even better than the way my friends treat me and like it and it did click with them um but yeah it's unfortunate that we use that as leverage it's almost like uh the same thing when uh uh, my dad had his painting and wallpaper business. We would be at someone's home. And there's there's this weird thing that we could totally totally dive into a little bit more if you want to. But as Jehovah's Witnesses, when you meet another Jehovah's Witness, like there's this like instant connection, like, oh, you're a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. So we'd be at someone's house and we would find out like, oh, like I'd see, you know, some literature like, oh, are you Jehovah's Witness? Yeah, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Oh, yeah, me too. Cool. Oh, man, what about, what about hooking me up with a discount since we're, you know, we're both brothers. We're, we're, we're brother and sister, whatever. And, and my dad used to always say like, no, why don't you pay me more? Oh, <laughs> <wow>. <laughs> because we're both Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, you should probably pay me double. Wow. Yeah. And it's, yeah. and it's just funny. I like, we, we don't use these connections. We don't use the yeah. thing like loyalty for the good. Yeah. We use it to like gain something from wow. someone else when it's, it really should be an excuse to give, not gain. Wow. Yeah. yeah you, you know, there, there, there's a good sentiment that I think lies at the heart of, of a healthy understanding of loyalty. And that is there are some things in life that are valuable enough to not be subject to convenience because we're not always in the mood to do the right thing. Sometimes our feelings make us say, I don't feel like showing up in ways that I know my value system demands me to show up. Mm. I, 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 or, or, or like some of the calls that we, that we receive, I don't feel like giving up this thing that's holding me back. I know I need to do it, but I don't feel like it, right? And, and, and loyalty is getting at the idea that you need to develop the habit of being faithful to things, even when those things are not easy to do. But loyalty gets misplaced when we ground it in people rather than principles. The thing that you're to be loyal to are your principles and the process of continually upgrading those principles yeah. in light of further knowledge not the fact that we went to high school together right yeah, yeah. like the whole the example you use of george clooney it's like the only connection that that person has with george clooney is the high school that's it that's there's it. no other connection and we want to draw other connections but i, I just want to like call out here that these things that these 13 things we wrote about there's no value judgment on these things in the sense that these 13 virtues aren't bad things to have in your life the problem and what we call it, it's problems when we overrate them. We rely on them too much to be this good person. Yes. That's yeah. where, that's where the, that's where it gets to be a little bit of a slippery slope. Um, so loyalty is great to be loyal to yourself. Yeah. To be loyal to your partner. I'm loyal, loyal to UTK in a lot of ways, but it's not something that I'm like, well, the reason why TK and I have such a great relationship is because no matter what, we're loyal to each other. Yeah. yeah. If you find out that he killed your sister, <laughs> right? Yeah. But I got to be loyal to him. Right. Well, then, of course, that's yeah. taking loyalty too far. You ever notice that a lot of people who follow loyal, loyalty dogmatically are often the most bitter people? Ooh, expand on that. I was attracted to that girl. And I laughed at every joke. I listened to her complain when she complained to me. I let her use my truck so that she can move from one apartment to the other. I gave her so much of my time and so much of my energy and then when she didn't like me back, I got really angry and really bitter and really resentful 
you like that other guy who doesn't even treat you well and I treat you good mm. as if your attractions to me should be based on loyalty to the fact that I have been good to you, right? When, when people use loyalty as a negotiating tool in order to obtain someone else's affection or approval, it always leads to bitterness. If you're going to be loyal to someone, only be loyal because that's consistent with your true principles, preferences, and priorities. Not because you think they're going to reward you with love mm. for being a nice person, a good person, a humble person, or whatever you think it may be. Like moral values are not there to make us liked. They're there to make us better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, another way to say that is a very common saying of like give without the expect the expectation of getting back. And like, you're going to live such a better life when you're giving yeah. without that expectation. But yeah, I think anytime that you're expecting to get, you're only doing something because you expect to get something back. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where your equation comes in. What yeah. is loyalty grounded in expectation is the express route to misery. Oh man. Tweet that podcast. Come Sean. on. Now. Come on. Yeah. There we go. And, and, and you can't even give by the way, like, if you're expecting something, then you're doing business and you need to be clear about it. There, there's nothing wrong with having expectation. Like, hey, I will mow your lawn and I'm expecting you to give me $50 for it. That's fine. Sure. But that's business. Right. We need to just be clear about that. I'm letting you know up front that mm -hmm. this is what, and, and do you agree with me? You state your expectation and you solicit agreement. Mm. If you're if you're doing those two things, it's fine to have expectations. Yes. But if, if you're just having a silent agreement. I'm going to do this for you with the hope that you'll, you know, do me a solid later on. You're, you're actually being manipulative and you're not being honest with yourself and others about it. And and the way you know you're being manipulative is you're going to be bitter at them if they yeah. don't meet your expectation. Yeah. There are people in my life who like will get mad at me for not meeting an expectation they had for me that they, ne they never even disclosed to me. And when that happens, I can call it out and I can be like, well, I didn't realize you had that expectation and have a conversation around it. But yeah. you're right. When the expectations are agreed upon, like that's when it's okay. That's when it's okay. Yeah. yeah. And also understand that expectations might change in time. And I, quite often we don't understand our own expectations. Mm. And, and we, we may say we expect one thing. And so what you're talking about, the business transaction, that's not a relationship. That is merely a business transaction. You could, you could do that same transaction with an AI or a robot if they had the same skill set, right? And they would probably better meet your expectations because there would be no sort of emotion involved. Mm. Relationships, love is not a transaction. Love transcends any sort of transaction. So that's why you know, the whole love people use things, you know, credo, when we're talking about loyalty, what we're talking about is not abusing other people with our so-called virtues. In fact, yeah. the last- I'm the last, with you all the way, but I, but I also do think that uh, business is, is relationship, is based on trust, well, that, not, yeah. that you, you can't do business with an AI. You can program an AI to generate a result based on certain input, but if we're doing business together, it's gotta be based on trust and it's relationship. There are no successful business people that haven't effectively won trust by building relationships. Sure, but I could also right. say I have a relation, what's, I could look at what's my relationship with this pen. Yes, you know, so Absolutely. I mean, so yes. Yeah, but, but, so, I'm, but the pen doesn't trust you, right? No, the pen doesn't trust me, but, yeah. but I'm just saying that that word relationship, you can use it in a lot of different facets. I, I think the way you're using it is yeah. totally appropriate. I mean, I would never judge how you use a word anyway. As the resident capitalist, I sometimes get sensitive about things. <laughs> well, I, I will say, say that it, it, if you're approaching business in a loving way, that's wonderful. And that's what, what you're, that's what you're explaining to me. Love mm. is simply seeing things for how, for what they are 
without trying to change another person. Yeah. That's all love is. You know, we have a definition for love in the last chapter of the book where we talk about a a zero sum, you know, the the score of zero rather. It's a tennis term, right? My favorite definition for love is a tennis term, and it, yeah. it, it is simply a score of zero, meaning I'm not keeping count of like, oh, well, you know, Ryan did these seven things for me, so now I need to do, I need to reciprocate seven things for him in order for me to love. That's yeah. not love. That is contribution. And, and, and by the way, he may be able to contribute more than me during a particular season and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And, and that is different from what love is. Love does not require any contribution. It doesn't even require appreciation. It doesn't, it, it often inspires these things, usually inspires these things, but those things are not a requirement of love. Hmm. I just want to add this here. Uh, this is the end of the 13 overrated um, virtues section. While some of the, this is just echoing what Ryan said, while some of these so-called virtues are best avoided altogether, jealousy, righteousness, and negativity are especially worth staring away from. Most can serve you well when you find the appropriate balance. Mm. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that loyalty is a key example of that. If I'm living, loyalty is the number one virtue. It's what I value more than anything. I, you're setting yourself up for some serious misery, mm. right? And so mm. let's talk about a few of these others. TK, what, what of these so-called virtues really stands out to you? We have honor. We have righteousness. We have transparency, pleasure, comfort, lust. Oh, why would someone think that is a virtue? Agreeability. Okay, that sounds like a virtue. Empathy. Uh-oh. That's the one thing that we kind of, well, I think we agree on now, but at first we were disagreeing about empathy. Right, yeah. right. And it was really an understanding of what what is meant by empathy. Mm-hmm. And and also I think what where we where we so we can we can touch on empathy here for a second, but yeah, the understanding that we had once upon a time, let's say 5 years ago, we both understood that empathy was good. Mhm. And it was all it was no. a yeah, it was a value judgment of good. If you're yes. uh, if yeah, if you're empathy is good, you're a good person. No empathy is bad. Right. That was sort of the rudimentary yeah, uh, thought that we had both had around empathy, right? Yeah. And we had just been told that and we took it sort of verbatim. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even know what empathy meant. We conflate empathy and compassion, two completely different things. Yes. And, and we write about that in, in the book as well. You've heard me talk about empathy versus compassion before, so I won't I, I Let's we'll get to the real quick. Give me 15 seconds to explain for for newcomers here. Compassion simply means to be with someone in their suffering. Calm, passion, calm means with, passus means suffering. So be with someone in their suffering. That's compassion. Empathy means to feel what other people feel. Empathy. So in the feelings of another person. Now we could mean that to mean compersion, but we never do. Mm. We never say have have uh, empathy for. Um, Michael Jordan, after he won his sixth title. No, no, no. It's always like, have empathy for the person who failed or hurt themselves or or suffering in some way, right? Yeah. And so, uh, Paul Bloom, who's going to be on the podcast really soon, he wrote a book called Against Empathy, A a Case for Rational Compassion. Mm. Uh, and, And when you look at it that way, really what we do in our culture is we confuse empathy with compassion. And so when people say, empathy is helpful, whatever, usually what they, they mean is, is compassion. In fact, that's what it says here in the chapter. Perhaps the most controversial of the overrated virtues 
is empathy. <laughs> Did you put that uh, 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 the most controversial because I was challenging you on it? <laughs> I don't remember. Maybe. Uh, yeah. uh, these days we hear everyone from preachers to pundits proclaim the power of empathy. But most of these people are actually talking about compassion, not empathy. If that's the case, I have no argument. Compassion, that is concern for the misfortunes of others, is useful. And we could use more of it. Empathy, however, that is the ability to feel the suffering of others, is not a desirable outcome. The Yale researcher and philosopher Paul Bloom makes this point in his book, uh, against empathy. We often think of our capacity, this is a quote from him, we often think of our capacity to experience the suffering of others as the ultimate source of goodness. Nothing could be further from the truth. Bloom goes on to say that empathy is one of the leading motivators of inequality and immorality in society. Far beyond, far, far from helping us to improve the lives of others, empathy is a capricious and irrational emotion that appeals to our narrow prejudices. It muddles our judgment and ironically often leads to cruelty. Mm. Now, if you read the book, you actually, he, he shows a bunch of case studies as why empathy leads to us actually being more cruel for others. Because what happens is we suffer on the behalf of others. That makes us be uh, we lash out at other people quite often. And the mm. data really supports this. Yeah. According to Bloom, we are at our best mm. when we are smart enough not to rely on it, but to draw instead upon a more distant compassion. Now, I'll just add to this and say, that doesn't mean I'm saying, well, no empathy is now good. Right. It's simply saying that maybe we overvalue empathy. We overrate it because we've been told it is nothing but good, but sometimes it might be harmful to us. Mm. Thoughts on empathy, TK? Yeah, what a terrible burden to bear that one must feel what others feel. If you have to feel what I feel, when do you ever get to be you? Mm. If you feel content in this moment, and I tell you that I'm anxious about money right now, really anxious. And then in order to be my friend, you have to take the emotional journey from your state of contentment to my state of anxiety. What just happened to Josh? Yeah. What just happened to the benefits of all the inner work that you did to even be able to be content? Well, now you have to be this emotionally volatile, psychologically unstable person who's constantly going up and down based on how the people around them feel. And the only way you can be valuable to the people around you is if you have some kind of core, some kind of conviction that's not based on them and you're able to speak life into them, you're able to show love to them from that place of not necessarily thinking how they think and feeling how they feel. People don't need you to have the same emotions as them. They, they need you to offer genuine compassion from a state of self-authenticity. Second thing I'll say is I like some of the thoughts of um, Marshall Rosenberg, nonviolent communication, and he makes a distinction between sympathy and empathy. And, and it's similar to your compassion and empathy, where he says sympathy is when I feel what you feel. And sometimes that's genuine. And, and when it, wh wherever it is uncoerced, it's good. If I see a friend crying and it invokes tears of my own, that's sympathy. Empathy is, as he describes it, the process of meeting another human being's need to feel seen and heard. Mm. And, and, and you can display empathy in, in the healthy sense by if someone says, man, I had a terrible day. You don't have to be like, yeah, me too. You can say, tell me more. Mm -hmm. what, what made you say that? And, and now you're making this person, person feel hurt. Oh, they're not trying to change me. They're, they're curious about what I'm feeling. And right. then they say, you know, man, my, my job just never appreciates me. 
and, and, and then he suggests repeating back to them what they said in your own words. Are, are, are you saying that you feel like you make a lot of sacrifices for your job and, and no one ever thanks you for it? Even if you're guessing wrong, that's okay because they're going to respond to that and say, no, no, I'm, I'm saying more like this, mm-hmm. right? But they're still feeling heard. They still feel that quest to try to understand them. That is a healthy virtue. And, and sometimes what happens is we, we confuse that or where that's supposed to take us with this thing that I'm not being loving to other people unless I can show them that I relate to that feeling. And as human beings, we're so diverse that sometimes the people we love are going to feel things that we just don't understand. Mm. And we have to know that there's nothing cruel about that. There's nothing unloving about that. We don't have to feel what they feel. We can still make them feel seen and heard from the vantage point of who we are. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Let's pick one more of these overrated virtues and then folks can check out the other, I got the other 10. Yeah. Tell me transparency. Woo. All right. Man, Let's talk about it. Yeah. yeah. I think so earlier in the book, we talk about it, but let me just read the, the excerpt here. You want to be honest and open with others, but you needn't let every thought that enters your brain spill out of your mouth unfiltered. If you aren't careful, you can hurt the ones you love and hurt your relationships with them in the process. Now, this often manifests. We, we conflate those three words. We, we, we say honest. We say open. We say truthful. We say transparent. We, we often all mean the same thing in our daily discourses, right? Mm-hmm. But when you think about you know, there's honesty, there's openness, and there's transparency, we don't actually want full-on transparency. I'm not going to give my social security number out on this podcast. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is someone could do harm to me with that. Mm. But the other one is it doesn't serve the greater good. And I think that's the, the bigger thing to really think about here. There's an entire chapter in this book about our relationship with the truth. Mm. And, and in there we go into transparency and how I could simply, you know, spew all these things. And we often hear, see people hurt other people's feelings intentionally, or sometimes even not intentionally under the guise of, I'm just keeping it real. I'm just being honest, mm-hmm. uh, full transparency, yeah. I hate your shirt. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. Yeah. Like, <laughs> maybe is there a better way for us to approach it? So transparency, overrated virtue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's the mark of a mature mind to not say everything that one thinks. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's what separates an adult from a child. A child doesn't have that filter. They don't have uh, an appreciation an earned appreciation for the power of words. And, and sometimes what we, uh, fail to understand about transparency is that the weight that other people might attribute to our expressions of thought is going to be very different than what we attribute to it because we know ourselves. We feel the full range of those emotions. So if I say something like, you know, I'm thinking about cheating on you mm. for that other person, they don't have the full context of that thought. Wow. You, know, you know, the other day, the, it, it crossed my mind that, you know, hey, adultery is possible for me. Like, what the heck, <laughs> right? Like, that other person you're telling that to, they may hold on to that. There's something about taking the time to process your thoughts, not only with yourself, but with other people that, that can help you get to the bottom of what you're feeling. Like, Talk to a therapist first before you share certain kinds of thoughts. Go mm-hmm. to a close friend first and say, hey, man, like, I know this, this is a bad thing and I feel really terrible about it, but I'm, I'm thinking about doing this. And, and let that friend talk to you about it because sometimes when you're talking to people that you love, 
sharing with them a process thought is much more value valuable than just sharing the thought as it hits you. Transparency mm. and truthfulness are two different things. You know, you should always be truthful, but that doesn't mean that you share with people every single observation you have, mm. every thought and feeling that goes through your mind. It's one of the reasons why people journal. And it's one of the reasons why it's kind of a violation of trust to read people's journals, because when a person journals, they have the freedom to say things that will be taken much more strongly than they are felt, right? Because when you're in the moment and you say things like, man, I just feel like killing this guy. Mm. Like I literally want to murder this guy mm. right now. You're expressing a feeling. But if that other person who doesn't have the feeling goes to look at your diary and they're like, Ryan wants to murder me. You call mm. the cops and it's just overly serious. Yeah, you know, right. th th there are very good reasons for taking the time to meditate, process your thoughts and discuss them with trusted parties before you just blout out to your job, your spouse, that you're thinking about quitting, that you're thinking about cheating or whatever else that crosses your mind. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's spot on. The, 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 there's almost this, I think it's become in vogue because we hear politicians often talk about, uh, we're going to have the most transparent administration. It's like, well, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't want you to, to like let out the nuclear codes. That's what a transparent administration. Oh, you're talking about an honest administration. Well, I don't trust any politician, so it's going to be really difficult. Yeah. Or tell me that you're scared and don't know what to do. No, tell me that we got our best man on the job. We're in the process of figuring it out and look confident while you say it. Don't be like, we're afraid. We don't know what to do. No, yeah. don't give me that. And you can frame it in a way that is honest. Yeah. And also courageous, right? And, and so maybe we could talk a bit about courage. That's not one of the virtues here, but but courage isn't a lack of fear. Mm. Courage is is doing something in the presence of fear, mm -hmm. right? So I think that we 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 get confused and we think, well, that person must be so courageous. I can't do it. I'm just a coward, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the only thing that separates the 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 coward from from the hero is a particular understanding of the situation that they that compels them to act despite the fact that fear is mm -hmm. present. Fear has arisen, right? Yeah. 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 All right, let's move on to a few other things here. I wanted to read so like I said, my favorite chapter in the book is the relationship with people. Uh, I go back on on back and forth on what my other favorite chapters are the self one, the stuff one, the, uh, truth chapter. Mm. I, 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 and we'll, uh, uh, Oh, I see, I see TK making his hand gesture. <laughs> I think maybe we should take a bio break. Okay. And then we'll get in to the symbiosis of love. But speaking of love, our good friend, Andrew Bell is going to be on the podcast real soon. He has a new album coming out next month. He was kind enough to share an advanced copy with me and Ryan, I've been listening to it nonstop. My daughter, eight-year-old daughter, Ella, has been listening to it nonstop. Let's listen to the new single from that album. It's called Spectrum. And then we'll be right back with TK Coleman.
That was Andrew Bell. We're back here with TK Coleman. We're going to talk about the symbiosis of love. This is the penultimate section in the book. It's called the symbiosis of love. I had the chance to sit down with the iconoclast Erwin Raphael McManus to talk about his thoughts on relationships. At age 60, McManus beat stage four colon cancer and wrote about the lessons of that battle in his book, The Way of the Warrior, An Ancient Path to Inner Peace. One of the lessons was that, in the grand scheme of things, our relationships are one of the few things that actually matter. This is a quote from him. I used to look for relationships that elevated me, McManus said. But as I got older, I realized I was buying into the cultural narcissism that says, this relationship is all about me. He realized that instead of simply pursuing relationships that elevated him, he needed to become the kind of person that helps, not changes, but helps others. We focus on how to get more for us, he continued, but that's the irony of relationships. If you spend all your time asking the wrong questions, how can I find the right person for me? How can I find what I need? How can I get what I want? You're missing the entire point of relationships. It's not about you. It's about how you can invest in others, how you can be a gift to others. McManus believes that the healthiest and most profound relationships are the ones in which you care about the other person more than you care about yourself. On the surface, this may seem like McManus is contradicting much of what I've written in this chapter, but he's not suggesting you undermine your values. No, McManus wants you to know yourself so well that you understand how to elevate others without weakening yourself. You were not designed to do life alone, he said. Even if you are the most talented, gifted, intelligent, passionate, creative person on the planet, and even if you have a complete understanding of your intention, your purpose, your reason for living, you are still not designed to do life alone. He went on to say, I know what you're thinking. What about my dreams? Whatever your dream is, you can't fulfill your dream alone. What about my purpose? Well, whatever your purpose is, you weren't designed to fulfill that purpose alone. In fact, if you are pursuing a purpose in which you don't need people, that is not the purpose of your life. If you have a dream, in which people are simply tools to be used to accomplish your outcome. That's not a dream at all. It's a nightmare. We all need people, McManus says, because we all need help. Coincidentally, we all possess the need to help others too. Not to use others, nor to be used, but to be useful for each other. That's the interplay of relationships. That's the symbiosis of love. When you're surrounded by disempowering people, you might wish to be alone. But when you are truly alone, you realize you need people. The alternative is solitary confinement, which is the worst kind of incarceration. There's so, something so bad about isolation that many humans would rather spend time around dangerous murderers and violent criminals 
than to be all alone. Yeah. Let's talk about this. Man. It's funny that there's this uh, Jean-Paul Sartre quote where he says, hell is other people. But I, I think what he was getting at is that other people are the means through which we discover the aspects of hell in our own selves that need to be dealt with. And sometimes other people can seem to create so many problems for us that we can think we are better off without them. But other people are really just mirrors reflecting back to ourselves things that are easy to ignore when we're alone. And, um, you know, I think it was uh, it was Ram Das who talked about uh, relationships are the highest form of sadhana. You know, when we interact with other people, they they compel us to face our insecurities to face our unresolved angst and, and the degree to which we have to be honest with ourselves increases. And so relationships are the ultimate gift. They are very difficult, very challenging in many ways, um, but they are how we truly come to know who we are as people being made in the image and likeness of God. So, you know, and I, I know McManus would like that language. I love what you read, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating because I, I do believe that other people are hell and, and, <laughs> And the reason I do is because I have a lot of evidence for it, right? In the sense that, well, let's think about this for a moment. Um, in fact, Ryan and I did an episode recently about the 40 life lessons from 40 years. I just wrote this essay about it. But I had two bonus ones just for the patrons. And number 42 was everyone you ever meet in your life will cause you misery. Mm. And so every relationship in your life, rather, it will cause some sort of misery. Mm. Now, what does that say? That's not to say that other people are the cause. It's often our own expectations of those other people that make us miserable. And so, and, and Ryan rebutted that and he goes, yeah, but you could also say the opposite. I'm like, well, of course you could. That, that's the whole point. Like we already know that yeah. we seek out other people for joy, for uh, um, happiness, for pleasure, etc. We already know that, but all, also that we don't realize that the other side of that coin that is always there is going to be some sort of misery. So choose your misery wisely, mm, right? Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise, if we're just sitting around the people, we, we've, 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 if we've birthed all of our relationships out of proximity or convenience, then yeah, we're probably going to be far more miserable than if we get really intentional about the people we bring in our life. And yes, there will still be some sort of misery, mm. But quite often that misery is there because of my absurd expectations of those other people. Yeah. Yeah. And what I said was not a rebuttal. It was, it was agreeing with what you said <laughs> and, and really it's about perspective. Mm. And that's, that's, I think yeah. what is important with any relationship is if you have the right perspective, then you can have a flourishing relationship. Yes. Uh, yeah. And with the wrong perspective, just having someone to benefit yourself, then mm. you're not going to create very, awesome relationships out of that right. perspective. Yeah. Right. You know, one spin on the idea that, that hell is other people is it's important to remember that we are that very hell for someone else. Right. So when, when we say, mm. yeah, there's a lot of evidence that people are hell, we are a part of that body of evidence. Yes. And in order to discover that, just go ask other people, what are the different ways we create hell for them? And most of them will have an easy time telling us at least a few ways, right? Um, it reminds what me of great, that. Hold on, just a, we got to pause on that for a second. What a great question that. What In what ways am I making you miserable? Mm. And especially with someone who is an intimate person in your life. I don't mean like sexually intimate, but like a close relationship. In, in the book, we, we define them as primary relationships. 
trusted confidants, being able to, to go, hey, in what ways do I make you miserable? Mm. Because what it's doing is it helps you better understand their expectations. Now, maybe they have absurd expectations, right? Sure. And at that, I can simply walk away from. But it could be also be that, oh, wow, I didn't even realize I was doing that thing. That, in fact, the thing I'm doing, I thought was making you, was satisfying you. Yeah. And now it, I'm learning that it's making you miserable. You don't like that? Mm. Now, misery, there's a, it's a spectrum. I'm not talking about like, in, in terrible agony from pain. That is a type of misery as well. Sometimes it can be something as bothersome as an ingrown hair. That's a type of low-grade misery. Mm -hmm. And so every relationship will birth that low-grade misery. But I love the question, TK, because it puts the onus back on us. Bex and I have been going through a few things recently where we're trying to better understand the expectations that we've inadvertently set for each other. So unnecessary expectations, right? And, and in understanding those, quite often the expectations drop because you realize they're often unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's powerful, man. I, I once had a friend, this is within the context of like church, but I think it applies to a, a variety of things. He said, um, and, and this may have originated with someone else, but he said, there's no such thing as a perfect church. And if there was, it would immediately cease to be perfect the moment you joined, right? Wow. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny because there, there are lots of people who would say, who would identify with this, man, I this is why I hate church, man, because the, the people, you know, I just can't stand the hypocrites and this and that. Well, understand if you went to church, you would immediately become someone else's reason for not going to church. Yeah. That that we are all a part of this reason for why difficulty exists. Even though we are very pleased with ourselves, even though we are very satisfied with who we are, other people experience us in a hellish way that accurately reflects the hellish manner in which we experience them. Mm. But that's why it's that's why it's a way to God. That's why it's practice. We, you know, it, it goes back to that Jet Li quote that we talked about that by facing the strength, the strengths and weaknesses of other people, we discover our own strengths and weaknesses and, and, and we learn how to become healthier versions of ourselves. Yeah. It's interesting too. Like, I don't know. We often talk about someone isn't responsible for your happiness. You know, someone isn't responsible for your pain. Mm -hmm. So really that misery that arises in someone, mm -hmm. they got to take, well, and oftentimes, not every single time, there's always an exception, but taking ownership for like, oh, they don't make me miserable. I make myself miserable. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I have these expectations. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I had this exact conversation mm -hmm. with Bex last week about... I'm really disappointed in something and, and we'll probably try to flesh it out at some point on her podcast, but I won't get into the details. It will, it'll diverge us or it'll, it'll be too big of a detour. <laughs> but anyway, um, but what I was disappointed in was my own expectations. Mm -hmm. Now in the past, what I would have said is I'm disappointed you did this. Mm. Yeah. And you, yes, I am disappointed in that, but I didn't really get to the sur to under the surface. Well, why am I disappointed? Because I had an expectation that you would do otherwise, and and, and so in under and I can do that without without blame. In fact, if I'm blaming anyone, it's simply taking responsibility for my own expectations, my own actions, as opposed to handing that off to someone else. And it's one of the hardest things to do, man, because yeah, I want to be right. But isn't that like the best way to really get a relationship to flourish? It's like taking responsibility yeah. 
for your part in it. Yes. I mean, I know that like for Mariah and I, if we have some kind of disagreement, the first thing I look at is myself. Like, what can I do differently? Mm. What have I mm. done? And then I might, I mean, sometimes you get the knee jerk reactions. Yes. I can't believe you did that. Whatever. For me, but, that's where it always starts with, is with the knee jerk reaction. Yeah. yeah. But if we can yeah. recognize that impulse, that knee jerk, and then just kind of look in the mirror first before we start pointing the finger. Yeah. Pause. Yeah. That is what really, it's the hard part, but it's really what helps relationships flourish. Indeed. For sure. And that pause yeah. gives you that time to, to sort of reflect and look in the mirror. And, and it's also advantageous. So when you talk about taking responsibility, that's not just some kind of moral platitude. Like, even though it stinks, it's the right thing to do and just push past the pain, the pain and do it. No, it's like, actually, that's the advantageous route to go because the path of personal responsibility is the only one that places things within your locus of control. Right. So as long as I'm mm. putting my problems in the realm of your fault, I am also reinforcing a concept of my own powerlessness because mm. now my happiness, my fulfillment, my well-being depends on you agreeing with me about how much of an idiot I think you are. Mm. And what are the odds I'm going to achieve that? You know, so my, my only <laughs> right. tool is arguing with you and, and debating you to get you to see things from my point of view. But when I look at it from the vantage point of like, hey, how is this on me? Not, not with a spirit of blame, but with a spirit of responsibility. Wayne Dyer says that responsibility is recognizing that in every situation, you have the power to respond with ability. It's mm -hmm. not saying, woe is me. Responsibility isn't the same thing as self-condemnation. Self-condemnation is when you say, I'm a bad person because I have this problem. Responsibility is when you say, I have this problem. It may not even be my fault. It mm -hmm. may be the result that someone else is inserting unwanted things in my experience, but it's on me to figure out the way that I'm going to cope with this or create a around it. How do I do that? Yes. Man, I got to start using that when I'm driving. <laughs> <laughs> the road rage? I don't get road rage, but it's just like I get, I get those knee-jerk reactions, whether it's like someone doing something to me mm -hmm. or someone who thinks I'm doing something to them. I mean, it's mm -hmm. both ways. Right. And, so uh, what, what's like what's the the kind version of road rage? It's yeah, like a, I was just trying to think that like uh, a, yeah, or, or road sadness, road sadness. <laughs> yeah, mm. I don't know. There's something there. I had, yeah. yeah, I like I had someone. Uh, this was a while ago, but like I had to get over in the turn lane, and like I was trying to slow down to let them pass me, but they were staying slow right next to me or like just a little bit behind me. My turn signal's on, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna have to speed up and get in front of you, like because I have to get into this turn lane. I'm signaling I need to get into this turn lane. And so I didn't even cut him off. I just like sped up, got plenty, gave him plenty of room, a car or two length, you know? Yeah. And then yeah. they just like lay on their horn. It's a red light too. Like it's like we were coming up on a red light. It wasn't even like, yeah, I impeded them. And I just, my knee jerk reaction was like, you know, wanting to flip them off. And I did not, but um, yes, exactly. But instead I just like, yeah, I just let it go. But the feeling was there and I'm just trying to flesh out how to like, hold that feeling, hold space for it, but also yeah. understand, you know, there's two sides to every situation mm -hmm. to be compassionate, maybe in mm -hmm. that, in that situation. Yeah. Is, was it DFW, David Foster Wallace, who talked about, you know, the speeding minivan or the speeding SUV yeah. and yeah. how this is water. Yeah, this is water. Yeah. That's a great, Oh, we should link to that. Yeah. yeah. We'll video, throw a link yeah. to that. In fact, there's a great YouTube version of it. Someone did like a, some sort of animation or something. So this is water was his Kenyan college commencement speech, which is, Strangely, the thing he's most known for, and it's the least DFW thing that right. he's ever done. Yeah, it is. Uh, David Foster Wallace, my favorite author, uh, he wrote Infinite Jest, The Pale King, etc. A supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Um, uh, 
I mean, I think he's the, the best author of all time, uh, at least in my personal opinion, right? I enjoy his work so much and there's so much depth to it. But that, it was almost motivational, which his stuff never is in right. a way. Yeah. But it was about compassion and having, mm-hmm. you know, the person who cut you off, well, maybe they're running to the hospital. Right. Or, you know, whatever. Maybe they're in, they're, they're uh, going through labor right now. And they need to quickly get to the hospital, whatever it might be. Yeah. We don't know. And so questioning other people's intentions is another recipe for discontent. I had that exact experience in Ohio. I you was, were pregnant? I was, on seven, I was on 71 South going from Lebanon to Cincinnati and like traffic was just horrible. Yes, it and was. And there's this like red, yeah, <laughs> always. There's this red uh, suburban I'll never forget it. Speeding down the emergency lane. And I'm like, who does this a-hole think they are? Right. Like, in what world do you think you could just get in the emergency lane and bypass traffic? <laughs> and then on the news later, I saw like, oh, man's wife gives birth in, in Cincinnati traffic or whatever it was. And it was the same exact car. I was like, wow. Oh, like that dude's wife was in labor. Yeah. Gave me a completely different perspective. Yeah. Who who thinks they can use the emergency lane? <laughs> Oh, maybe a person who has an emergency. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. So here, here's one story on this. So um, my, my wife used to lean on that horn sometimes when people would do things on the road. And I would say, hey, look, you never know who you're dealing with on these streets. Oh, like, yeah. You just never know. Right. Pe- people can be very evil, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and I would say that, and there was one day we we're driving together. I'm in the passenger seat and I've got my seat all the way back and I'm, I'm taking a nap. She's driving, somebody does something stupid and she honks her horn at them. She continues driving for a couple more minutes. She pulls into the parking space for where we're going. That guy had followed her. Oh. He was following her, right? And I pop my seat up not knowing. Mm. And when I pop my seat up, the guy sees me and then he takes Jets. off. Yeah. Uh. And she got it at that point. I couldn't have asked for a better situation. But the question is, what would he have done? Yeah. What would he, what was he up to? And so there are a couple of possibilities, probably way more than just two, but you can say, Hey, maybe this person is going through something and I should be more compassionate. Also, you can say, maybe this person is a complete jerk who has no business doing what they're doing, but honking the horn and antagonizing them is only going to put me in an even worse position. Yeah. So, so there are some ways to process that that don't require you to be like super enlightened or super compassionate. And I know that's important for me because I'm not always able to access a state of consciousness where I go, you know what? This guy has a story and I can appreciate it. Sometimes I'm like, nope, what you did is wrong. I don't care what you're going through, but I'm not going to honk my horn at you because you might actually kill me and I care about my life. Let's keep it moving. Yeah. Sometimes that gets you through. Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially, man, I can't even tell you how many, once a month, twice a month, you hear a story in LA where some... Minor incident escalated to where all of a sudden, like someone's dying. That's the thing with, yeah. with all of these things. Our knee-jerk reaction, as Ryan said, is to escalate. Yeah. Whether it's stuck in traffic or it is bickering with a spouse, and all of a sudden that turns into an argument, which turns into a fight, which turns into World mm-hmm. War Three, and objects are being thrown at the wall and other things. Mm-hmm. Wrote about that in the book as well, and and it's this tiny little thing that escalates. And rarely do we stop and say, how do I de-escalate this? Because yeah. we don't even think about the outcome. We, like, what, do you, what do you hope to achieve out of the escalation? Well, we don't yeah. even ask that question. Because if you ask yeah. that question, all of a sudden the desire to escalate seems silly. Yeah, it drops. Yeah. yeah. I, you know what I'm going to yeah. start 
tell him because I just realized like the like the 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 guy honking at me. It's a feeling of disrespect. Man, he's like just going out of his way to disrespect me, and he is because yes. he feels like I went out of my way to disrespect him. So it's this eye for an eye thing where instead of escalating, I can just I can just look at it through that lens and say, uh, you know, this person doesn't know me. Yeah. They really don't understand my situation. They clearly didn't, you know, see my turn signal or whatever it is, and uh, I'm just gonna let this go instead of you know sitting there and festering like oh man i really want to like flip this guy off and yes. drive real slow in front of him or brake check him whatever it is um yeah the problem there is the needing of respect right right the yeah. ego says that i should be respected mm. and therefore someone disrespecting me has all of a sudden challenged my ego in a way that has put me in a dangerous situation yeah. But that's what the ego does. It puts us in all of these situations that bring us misery. Yeah. And it's okay to say, I like to feel respected. But when I am in a situation where another person is not choosing to give me that respect, I have to recognize the constraints upon my life. I cannot use coercion or some other form of behavior that will jeopardize my own safety in order to get that respect. You know, there's a, there's a proverb in the Bible that says, be angry and sin not. And the meaning there is you will have feelings of frustration, but don't ever let those feelings of frustration cause you to miss the mark. It's not a sin to get mad. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. And it doesn't even mean that you're unenlightened because sometimes our anger is a clue to things that we're supposed to do something about. Anger mm. can lead to a lot of good. So the goal isn't to say, oh, I'm angry. How can I become so enlightened that I never feel feelings like frustration and irritation? The goal is to say, I'm angry, but what's, what's the goal here? Yes. What, what's the purpose here? I'm, I'm driving to the grocery store and I want to get there safely. Mm -hmm. This person has just taken my trip from a 15 minute trip to a 17 minute trip, mm -hmm. but I'm going to stay focused on getting to the grocery store safely and I'm not going to risk my life in order to punish this person for two minutes. I'm going to use the horn for what it's for, mm -hmm. intervening with situations that I can change. I'm not going to use my horn to punish people, not because it's unenlightened, but because it simply doesn't work. Yeah. There's no one that you're going to honk the horn at after the event has passed that's going to stop the car and get out and be like, man, thanks for changing my life. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so it doesn't serve the greater good. Now, if a yeah. car is getting ready to hit you and you're able to avoid something. That's why we have the horn. Yes, right. yeah. that's why it's, that's beautiful, man. <clears throat> yeah. Now, I went to Facebook, gentlemen, and I wrote, what is the most tense relationship in your life? Obviously, this book, Love People Use Things, is about the seven essential relationships in our life. Now, Ryan and I, when we wrote this book, right, so Ryan finishes every chapter with this coda, right? He sort of gives some different life observations and advice, some do's and don'ts about stuff or the do's and don'ts about the truth. I've gotten so many comments from early readers of the book. They're like, I love how the voice just shifts in the, at the end of the chapter and it goes to Ryan sort of doing his mentor thing mm. at the end of each chapter. And, um, and so what I, what, I want, what, I, what I wanted to do with this Facebook post was help people identify what is their most tense relationship. Because in the book, Ryan and I wanted to write a traditional relationship book. You yeah, know, about yeah. people. And we, what we realized, yeah. in fact, I think I wrote about this in the epilogue here. Maybe it was even in the acknowledgments. I don't, I don't remember. Let me see if I could find it though. Um, da, 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 everything that remains, where is that at? 
Da, da, da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, frankly, I was afraid to write another book because I didn't think I could top everything that remains, which mm. I could argue took 32 years to write and until now has been my favorite creation. Only time will tell whether this book becomes my new favorite and more important, a reader favorite. It was by far the most challenging book I've ever written, but also the most rewarding, which doesn't seem like a coincidence. I wanted to give up at least a dozen times. Mm. The first four attempts were still born on the page, mm. but I drudged through the drudgery, jettisoning tens of thousands of words along the way, starting over again and again. The book didn't take its current shape until our agent, Mark, uh, nudged me in the right direction. He and our editors, Ryan and Cecily, pushed me beyond the comfort zone, encouraged me not only to write about the minimalist personal mishaps, but to interweave those passages with expert insights and interviews of the stories of people who benefited from sim simplifying their lives. Da, 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 da. Where's the part that I wanted to read to you? Come on, Josh. <laughs> Maybe it's actually in the epilogue here. <laughs> wow. I just read a whole thing that you had to sit through. You got a piece of the acknowledgments. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll just try to sum it up since I can't find it. It's somewhere in the book. Basically, Ryan and I wanted to write a relationship book. But then we realized like, oh, we had screwed up so many other areas of our life. And that's what was screwing up our relationships. Mm -hmm. And until we looked sort of inside ourselves, but it starts with the stuff as the minimalist. Initially, this book actually started with the truth chapter. The very first line of this book, before we, we switched the order around, the very first line was... I cheated on my wife the day after my mother died of lung cancer. And well, the editor was like, we don't want the reader to hate you at the first line. And I'm like, I'm okay with that. Like you <laughs> right. might have a need for them to like you, but it was like, well, it's just, so now the first line is actually, um, I wrote the, the, the preface as like, a my one of my favorite authors, a guy named Adrian McKinty, who was kind enough to write a blurb for this book, mm. but he, uh, he writes crime thrillers. And so I wanted to write the first chapter like a crime thriller, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So the very beginning, this is the preface, uh, the first line of the book. I have a real thing about first lines of books. My wife and I will go to bookstores. We'll just read. We'll have like, we'll have competitions. Um, <laughs> and which I don't know who's ever won them, but like, we'll just a duel, really. We go back and forth. We'll pick a random book off the shelf, read the first line of the book. Yeah, yeah. Because in my writing class, I teach about narrative urgency. The, yeah. the point of the first line of the book is, to get you to want to read the second line. Yeah. And so the first line of love people use things is the streets are rumpant with uniform men wielding Titanic assault rifles. That's a sentence, man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, um, but originally in, in a way that sort of submerges you in this other world. It's a, a, a strange world mm. where the streets have been taken over. Helicopters are blaring, staying alive by the BGs. Like it's this dystopian world. And uh, I wrote it that way for a reason, but the book started with the relationship with truth because I think we're lying to ourselves and um, we lie to other people, obviously, but I think we lie to other people mainly because we lie to ourselves. Mm. The stories we tell ourselves are types of lies, right? So with the, as the minimalist, yes, the book starts with the stuff. And if you're a long time listener, reader, viewer of the minimalist, you'll find a lot of components you're already familiar with in that introduction chapter and even in the stuff chapter. But beyond that, it's, it's this new territory where we looked at these relationships in our life to try to heal them. 
And I know there was a great deal of healing for both Ryan and me as we were going through this and sort of getting those stories onto the page, understanding our lives a bit better as well. And so I want to help some people with mm. their uh, with their understanding here as well. So I asked these questions. What was the most tense relationship in your life? And we got a bunch of different comments and questions here. Well, let's start with yeah. Victoria. <clears throat> Is it loving to separate yourself from people you're very close to, family members, friends, colleagues, simply because your values are not perfectly aligned. I was raised as a Jehovah's witness. I understand that my family is allowed to set boundaries they feel are best for their lives. And they don't have to be around me if they feel it compromises their beliefs. But I'm struggling to grapple with the idea that their actions are coming from a place of love. Let me say this. Their actions probably aren't coming from a place of love. Hmm. Their, their actions are coming from a place of misunderstanding love. Mm. And so they think they're being loving. Yeah. Right. So loving is simply what? Is seeing things for what they are without trying to change another person. And, and so to love, to try to change someone is not to try to love them. Now they have a misunderstanding of love here and they think that coercion or persuasion or you know, twisting of one's arm is loving. If I could just get you to change. But by the way, haven't we all felt that way at some point? I'm going to be the way for me to be loving to you is to change you and mold you into what I know is right. Mm. And that's not loving though. And so hmm. maybe they're doing it from a place of like, they really like you mm. and they think that they love you, but in order to love someone, we can't, we can't try to change them. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. That's powerful. You know, I, I, I treat the issue of cutting people off similar to the the question of, hey, I have these things I no longer use. Should I throw them out? Okay, if it comes to that, and that is absolutely necessary for you to stop the stuff in your life from holding you back, well, then better to trash your stuff than to trash your life. However, you do have options before throwing things away that you should at least consider, right? You can donate them, generally speaking, taking it to goodwill. You can mm -hmm. donate intentionally by finding individuals who need the stuff. You can recycle them. And usually you'll find, if you do the work, that there's a way to get rid of stuff without having to trash it. Yeah. More often than not, than not, there is a way. I think there's a similar principle at work with cutting people off. I think if you're not careful, cutting people off can be a form of laziness. It can be a form of hiding because you can use cutting people off as a way of not having to grapple with the tension that comes from disagreeing with people honestly. If I cut you off, then I never have to tell you, no, I don't wanna do that. If I cut you off, then I never have to say, actually, that's not an appropriate conversation for us to have. You know, it's much harder to stay in fellowship with people and establish healthy boundaries that allow the relationship to continue in a way that's mutually respectful it's much harder to do that than it is to just be frustrated and say, you know what, I'm never talking to you again. And I, I, I think there is a line where sometimes it's appropriate to say, in order to preserve my sanity, in order to preserve my life, I've got to move to a different neighborhood. I can't talk to this person again. But sometimes, to quote Erin Raphael McManus, you have to allow the world to feel the weight of who you truly are and let them deal with it. And usually when a person comes to a place of saying, I need to cut this relationship off. What that means typically is that the other person in their life is allowing their weight to be felt 
and they've just been taking it and taking it and taking it and taking it. And they're like, I can't take it anymore. So I got to leave. Okay. You have that as an option, but why don't you give yourself the chance to see what this relationship looks like? If you allow your weight to be felt set a boundary, because now that you've made up your mind that it's okay to leave, you should at least experiment and have the fun of saying, well, what the hell? Let's see what happens when I say, no, I want to pick the movie this time. You know what I mean? Right. Whatever. Now you've got is. nothing to lose. Yeah. yeah. And it actually makes it easier for you to go through the healing process because a lot of times what makes healing broken relationships difficult is we have all these regrets about never saying what we really wanted to say. Mm. I think oftentimes that can be the most painful part of the breakup. But when you put it on the record and said what you have to say, yes. you can move on in peace. I can tell you yeah. my current relationship, there's... I have no regrets of ever not saying what I wanted to say. Now, in the past, in fact, before we started recording, you even told me like, oh, wow, Josh, you say whatever you want to say, whatever you want to say. <laughs> yeah. And you don't seem to even have a like regard for other yeah. people's like feelings about it. And I, I don't really, because I know what my intentions are and it's not to harm anyone. And, and although in the past... I've had both. I've had the intention to, oh, I'm going to get my dig in or I need to, yep. I need to be right here. Cause yep. my intention is also not to be right here. Not anymore. Now, Ryan, I'm interested because Victoria's question has to hit close to home for you. Mm-hmm. She, she has no control in this scenario. So the only thing that she's really struggling with is what she's struggling with letting go because she doesn't have the option. Mm. It, just like you don't have the option. Your dad does not talk to you anymore because of the, the religion. Yeah. And, and so while you would like to have him in your life, you don't have that option currently. Yeah. Um, man, my first inclination is to tell Victoria to assume the best. I have never regretted assuming the best of someone. Mm. So, uh, give them the benefit of the doubt that they are coming from a place of love. I agree that it's a misunderstanding, but, um, I don't, I know that I misunderstand things. I mean, I'm not aware of it. If I was, I try to gain a new understanding. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I would assume the, I would assume the best in that regards when it comes to my, my dad, uh, uh, I, I see his perspective and really I can see and almost like appreciate the battle that he is facing with the religion versus associating with his son and his daughter at this point, because he has now cut off my sister as well. Um, I mean, there, there is a, there is a struggle going on there and it's not, it's not easy for him to cut us out. No. In fact, I think it's probably the most difficult thing he's ever had to do Mm. is cut out his kids. But there is in his mind, this moral obligation Mm. to stay faithful to this organization rather than to stay faithful to his kids. And again, like that's a battle that I, I can only see where he's coming from and I can uh, respect and, and again, even to a certain extent, appreciate this yes. battle that he's going through. So, you know, uh, Victoria's question was, is it loving to separate yourself from people you're very close to? Um, to answer that question, I think if that's what helps the relationship flourish the best, then that's where I would deem it appropriate. So when it comes to certain family members, uh, there are, there were not anymore, really like everything's kind of going really smooth right now, but I had some toxic relationships with family members and I really had to love them from a distance because if I didn't love them from a distance and spent time with them, then things would escalate. I know they would escalate. So, 
Sometimes you can only love them from a distance. Right. Absolutely. And uh, it's <clears throat> it's funny because I think my mom, she had brought up like, I don't even know what love someone from a distance means. So she must have been listening to a podcast or something. Sure. And I'm like. We'll come it, back to this, but I don't know what it means to love someone without a distance. But we'll come back ooh, to that. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I like that. Um, actually, no, let's just go into that. Let's go into it. So, uh, yeah, expound. In order for love to be what it is, there must be a healthy amount of space between the two parties involved. Mm. None of us can be intimate and in proximity with each other all the time without exception. Even a husband and wife who absolutely love each other and enjoy being around each other need time to do some things alone, right? Okay, I'm going to take a shower and I don't want to talk about anything. I don't want to make plans together. Just 15 minutes of me and this water and nothing else, mm. right? Mm -hmm. My wife needs some time alone from me. I need some time alone from her. And every relationship involves this dynamic interplay between space and proximity. You need both of those things. What makes each relationship different, however, is the degree of distance that's required. Yeah. The, the amount of distance I need from Josh in order to love him is different from the amount of distance I need from my wife and different from the amount of distance I need from people that I cannot tolerate being around for longer than five minutes. Yeah. But all love requires distance. The question is, what is the right amount of distance based on the boundaries I need to establish for our relationship to be healthy? Mm, it almost makes me think that when you're not creating that space because you love someone so much, like I never even thought of this, but I guess there is a way like th that toxic love could be involved in a relationship. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, the the smothering of what what was it, of mice and mice and men when he loved the little was it the oh, mouse yeah. so much that we'll he killed it. Yeah. And love yeah. You and, yeah. Yeah. And and that's that's toxic love. That yeah. that's the sort of manif that's the the parody manifestation yeah. of of toxic love. And Which is different from tainted love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is a song we might have to end the episode. <laughs> so, oh, man. so yeah, I think I think we've adequately answered Victoria's question. I will add one last thing. We talked about the spontaneous combustion rule. Man, wouldn't that apply to relationships as well? Yeah. If I look and we talk about this a bit in Love People Use Things, if you look at a relationship in your life as you're reprioritizing, because there are three different types of relationships. There are primary relationships, secondary relationships, tertiary relationships. Those are the ones on the periphery. Unfortunately, most of us end up spending all of our time with that that periphery. 90% of our time is dedicated to them, and so we lose the focus on the people most important to us, including ourselves, mm. right? And so we're spending time with coworkers and networking buddies and bosses and, and, and hookups or whatever it might be. Nothing wrong with these people. In fact, they're an important layer of relationships in our life. They're just often misprioritized in our life. And, and man, when we misprioritize our relationships, then what happens? The people closest to us, we forsake them. And we don't even realize we are forsaking them. And I think Victoria feels uh, forsaken right now, right? Mm. And so let's talk about the spontaneous combustion rule. These relationships in your life, if you look at any relationship in your life, let's say you have 150 because you've looked at Dunbar's number and you say any person can have up to 150 relationships in their life. Mm. Just pick one. Look at each relationship one at a time. Now, if, if I were to, would I bring this person in my life right now? How would I feel if I no longer had this relationship in my life? Mm. Would I actively seek out this relationship mm. again? And if so, wow, 
what a gift this relationship is to me in my life. Even with some of the misery it might bring me, what a gift this is. Mm. If the answer is hell no, Mm. I would never bring the, you know, I just have to because we're family. Eh, No, no, you can love that person from a distance. You know, one thing Mm. I'll add about the relationship with my dad and I is I have, I've come to the, not just the intellectual, but, but the feeling of like, I do want him to be happy. I want him to live the best life he can live. Yeah. And that's huge. Even to the point though, if it means that he thinks that the only way he can live his best life is by cutting me and my sister out, like there's a piece of me that emotionally can connect with like, well, I hope he's happy. Mm. Wow. And really, uh, supporting him in a way that like as much as I can. So he'll still like, I, I think, I don't know. I was texting me the other day about something like just, it was, you know, total business. Like I forget, I forget what it was about. And, uh, yeah, he totally responds to that stuff. It's just the, it's like the relationship. He just doesn't focus on the relationship at all. But, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, if that's all that I get of him, all right. Now you can want him to be happy without needing to make him happy. Yes. Mm. And you have finally found that distinction. Mm. It sounds like, yeah, because before it was like, I need you to make me happy. You need me to make you happy. That's not what a relationship is. By the way, relationships don't actually exist, right? Mm. In the real sense of, of, of the word exists. Like it's always a dynamic between two people. We often think of relationships as though there's this magical third thing mm. where it's like, oh yeah, it's a me and Ryan. And then we have a relationship. Well, no, no, no. It's just the interplay. It's the symbiosis Mm. of two people, two Mm. or more people. I thought there was an invisible cord keeping us together, man. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Something that Ryan's uh, attitude towards his father beautifully illustrates, and and I would encourage you you to consider this, is that a boundary line doesn't have to be a battle line. You Mm. You can have differences with people without demonizing them. You can disagree with them without disrespecting them. You can love from a distance without resenting them for the fact that you have to do that. Mm -hmm. And you can be honest about your constraints without feeling like there is no such thing as a condition where you would allow them to interact with you. I think that's huge. You Mm -hmm. sound like someone who would pick up the phone Mm -hmm. if you saw your dad's number on the caller ID and he said, son, I like to talk that you would create space for that. Yeah, it actually helped me. You're right. Uh, Having that that thought of like supporting him, even though it's like detriment to me, um, it, it has helped me get over the resentment. And cause I used to think like mm-hmm. the opposite of like, man, if he called me and needed something, I just can't wait to be like, Nope, dad, sorry. You weren't there for me. I'm not going to be there for you. Mm, wow. And, uh, yeah, I've just been able to get through in the last like year, maybe. And by um, the way, you wouldn't be wrong if you did that. Sure. I want to be clear in, in, in some scenarios, someone's listening to this. There are some scenarios where picking up the phone is, the wrong thing to do. Right, it's enabling, right? It's enabling, right. or maybe it's abusive, and you're allow you're enabling them to be the abuser. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not victim blaming here. I want to be clear about that. But if you are the victim of someone else's abusive behavior, whether it's physical, verbal, mm-hmm. emotional, then that distance might mean you have to have that steady boundary, yep. and you can't tear down the boundary uh, just because. They've come up with a good story, and I swear it's different this time. Mm. Yeah. Well, no, that's what the boundary is there for, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, one last thing, man. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, we got several last things. We keep going. <laughs> one last thing, a, a memoir by T.K. Coleman. Right. That's a good name for a podcast, actually. <laughs> one last thing. Yeah. One last yeah. thing. A podca- the podcast that never ends. Yeah. Mm. <laughs>
I'm trying to think of this thing you said. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You talk about how we look at relationships as this static thing. Yes. And it's more of a dynamic interplay. It made me realize that we, we do the same thing to the concept of distance. We sometimes think about distance as if it's an absolute all or nothing thing. Mm -hmm. Should I love this person from a distance? Should I separate myself from the people that I love? There's no reason that we have to answer that question in a permanent sense. Like, like the answer that I choose now can never be negotiated as I evolve. It's possible that by taking some time away, you can more readily facilitate changes in your own life that allow you to go back to that relationship and recreate it in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. So if you've got people in your life that are just, the relationship is toxic and maybe it's not all their fault, maybe it's really complex, it may be possible that if you just take a few months and, and significantly limit your interaction with them, you might be able to get inside your own heart and mind mm -hmm. in a way that helps you parcel things out and say, okay, this relationship can continue, mm. but now that I'm clear with myself, here's how it needs to be. And I know how to communicate with them honestly and healthily. Yeah, this happened yeah. to me and with Bex recently. I, I was feeling resentful for, I felt like that she was taking me for granted mm. uh, with a few things that were going on in our life. And, and so I simply voiced that, but in, not in a way that was accusatory. Yeah, And I think that's what I had that, that's the difference between now and, and previous relationships of mine where I would have said, you are taking me for granted mm. as opposed to putting the onus back on me. Hey, here's what I'm feeling. Let me explain why I feel it. Part of it has to do with my own expectations. Part of it has to do that, um, that I haven't been clear about what I want or um, what what the symbiosis of this thing is, you know, the give and take. And also you know, when Ryan and I talk about the us box and, and that's in, in the book as well, but the us box is in every relationship, there is this imaginary sort of center where you contribute what you can, you take what you need. And when someone simply takes, 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 they're a parasite by definition. Yeah, yeah. If they only contribute and they never get anything from it, then they start to feel like they're being taken advantage of. They're feeling mm -hmm. used. Mm -hmm. And that's where I was in our relationship recently. I felt like I was being used in a way. Mm -hmm. But then I also knew that Bex was not doing that intentionally, right? Yeah. And so what was required was a better communication and, and expressing it in a way that didn't express blame, but expressed my own sort of insecurities or expressed my own doubts, my own fears. Uh, any any feelings that I had, not in a way that says you need to change, but let's 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 identify, let's better understand the dynamic of what's going on right now, mm. so we can determine in which direction we want to travel. That's powerful. Wow, that that's incredibly. I mean, the difficulty is relative, but that strikes me as an incredibly difficult thing to do. Sure, it's it's yeah. been a difficult conversation the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's uh, let's move on to Matt's question here. My wife, podcast title, by the way. Uh, there's no right or wrong about this, but you're a parasite. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. Uh, all right, Matt. <clears throat> my wife and I moved from Iowa to Southern California for my seminary program. In hindsight, we were actually running from our family, but then COVID hit and we were isolated. We yearned for community, so we moved back to Iowa. Almost immediately, we realized our family wasn't the community we were looking for. For our three children, family time is so life-giving, but... It's so life-sucking for us. How can we try to bring healing to these relationships so they aren't so 
awful. Josh, you know what I like about the relationship chapter in our book is in that in the end mentoring section, uh, it might be the first thing I recommend is like, how can you fix this relationship? Mm, yeah. Instead of just like looking at it and be like, yep, they're toxic. They make my life miserable. They're, we're cutting them out. Like the, the, the advice or the, the recommendation yeah. is, Hey, why don't you look in the mirror and see if there's anything you can do to help mm. fix this relationship first before you just make this black or white decision. Right. So, with Matt's question here, that's the question I would ask Matt. Like, what is it that you and your wife can do to make mm-hmm. this more enjoyable for for the two of you? Obviously, it's enjoyable for your kids. Are there boundaries to set up? Maybe there are some uh, boundaries you haven't shared, some expectations you haven't shared with your parents or with your family that they aren't even aware of. Mm-hmm. And the worst way to like like set up those boundaries and those expectations is passive aggressively Ooh. just like kind of you know jab wow. here or there. Yeah, oh. and they're from iowa yeah. too so there's a lot of i mean that's that's <laughs> minnesota adjacent yes which is the land of passive aggression yes <laughs> yeah so that's that's what i would posit to matt like if it's absolutely soul-sucking then there's a way even still for you to like give it to your kids uh that family time and for you to like step away from it so i mean there's, there's a middle ground there but i would even challenge you further to be like no f- figure out if there's a way that you can approach this to uh, to make it so you can actually be there with your three kids experiencing this family time. And and maybe it's not like having the best time of your life, but at least maybe it's not life sucking. Start there with, with a non-life sucking approach mm. rather than like making it this like it's either enjoyable or it's not enjoyable. Yes. The, the life giving part mm. really stood out to me because the implication of this question is what? the only way that my children will have a life-giving experience is with these particular family members. Mm. Well, children are the most malleable out of all of us. Yeah. Everything is life-giving to them. Give them a pet rock. Right. (laughs) Except for the scenarios we put them in. There's a reason that like every kid thinks school sucks mm, yeah. <laughs> because school sucks. Right. Yeah. Right. We're actually trying to change that for Ella right now. We found a, a better school that doesn't require, you know, it doesn't have all these tests and, 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 and it doesn't have the sort of traditional factory worker automaton, automaton mm-hmm. reality for little kids, right. Training them to raise their hand and speak when spoken to sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is TK's wheelhouse, so he can certainly speak to that, but <laughs> Kids, everything is life-giving for them. So if the family is toxic for you, if it's life-sucking, if it's simply not enjoyable, if it doesn't align with your values, it's okay to just spend an evening with them. Mm -hmm. And maybe the poison is in the dosage. Beck's figured this out recently. Thank Mm -hmm. God this is the private podcast here. But she spent 10 days in... Uh, back in Minnesota with her family. Mm -hmm. And what she's finding out right now is she absolutely loves her family. She doesn't love spending 10 days with them. Yeah, And in a way, if she could spend a day with them, life-giving, gratifying, enjoyable. Yeah, Yeah. But too much of a good thing. It's like, how many Snickers bars am I going to eat before I throw up? Like the first one is amazing. The 15th one is making me sweat and anxious and giving me diarrhea. And, <laughs> and so like all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute. Maybe the poison mm. is in the dose. And if you can identify what is the dose that is best for you. And by the way, it's different for each of us, right? Yeah. You know, it's like your calorie count is going to be slightly different for each person. How much, many macronutrients you need. These are preferences. And, and it's okay to have the preference that you have. And maybe the dose for you 
is zero. And that's okay too. It's up for you to decide. The only way you can figure that out though is sort of the process, uh, process of elimination that Ryan is talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. That is the answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it makes me think of like how I talk about in any given relationship, me and Josh, me and UTK, me and uh, the barista across the street. Like anytime you're having an interaction with someone, you want to be understood. You want to be uh, respected. And really, even though I don't really know that barista, we still want to be loved. I mean, that's, that's yeah. just a constant. Yeah. So, you could also look at that um, with the, the Terra uh, uh, acronym that we have. So Terra is toler- tolerate, accept, respect, appreciate. And it, so appreciation can, you know, in, in another way can mean love. But if you can first tolerate your parents, it's pretty weak virtue, but start there. And then start to look through their lens, start to understand and accept why they are the way they are. Mm-hmm. And then like once you can get to the acceptance, then you can start working on like respecting their space and respecting their boundaries. And then eventually if the relationship flourishes enough, you can even appreciate these differences. Yeah. So, I mean, that is really where, you know, I would encourage Matt to go is like first, first tolerate just work on the tolerate and acceptance part. Mm. Um, the, the only thing I'll say is it's a two way street. Like if you're, if you know, if your family is constantly, disrespecting you, mistreating you, misguiding your, whatever it is. Trying to change you. Yeah. Trying to change you. Like, and and you've went out of your way to tolerate and accept and maybe even respect, but you're not getting any of that back. Well then now, uh, that us box is just filled with, with your actions. And that is a problem. Yeah. And there, there is no magic recipe. Like to hold account is it's a zero sum game to hold account. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. So don't, don't hold account, but you know, there is a, it's, I don't know if it's a feeling, but there's not like a mathematical equation. I can be like, well, if you've done X, Y, and Z, yeah, then yeah. you can give yourself permission to let go. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. But there is a point where you can look at it and be like, man, I have given to this thing 20 different ways and this person just isn't giving back. So I've really got it. Now I have to like create that distance and love them from a distance. I'm trying to find an excerpt here that describes what you're saying. And I may have, nope. I found a funny line though. <laughs> but both of the thoughts that you share need to be clipped up mm. and put on the main page. I, I think this is powerful insight. Mm. Nope, this is just for the patrons. <laughs> <laughs> I saw my wife naked for the first time about two minutes into our first date. <laughs> Great first sentence. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's a good first sentence yeah. there. You'll just leave to, it there. Just yeah, leave you'll it have there. to read the rest <laughs> yeah, of that. It's pretty funny. Yeah. You should have opened the book with that. I know, right? Uh, yeah. It's a section in that people chapter about finding empowering relationships. Mm. And so really what you have here is you have some disempowering relationships. Now, part of the reason could be that there's some toxicity in the relationship, but often I might be the toxic person in the relationship. Now, toxic it doesn't mean that I'm bad or you're bad. Sometimes you put two chemicals together and they were fine on their own. But as soon as they get in that Bunsen burner together, mm-hmm. there's an explosion. Or in that baking soda vinegar volcano. <laughs> <laughs> Saw George Carlin joke this morning. He said, why do they call bacon bacon and cookies cookies when you cook bacon and you, you bake, bake cookies? cookies. <laughs> Speaking of cookies, I heard uh, Wayne Dyer tell uh, the story of the cookie thief. He was on a plane and, you know, before he got on, he bought this little pack of cookies. 
he sits down, op- uh, opens up his pack of cookies, sits it next to him. And the person sitting next to him, she grabs one of his cookies and eats them. <laughs> and he thinks to himself, no way. That did not just happen, right? And so he goes, I'm just going to play it cool. Ignore that. Let that be a one-off. So he eats one of his cookies. She reaches in there and eats another one. And he's like, you've got to be kidding me, right? <laughs> the goal. And, and, and he's trying to think of all these enlightened ways to like be honest with her and express his feelings. So then um, they continue to eat the cookies together and it gets down to the last cookie. And they their hands reach in at the same time. And they look at each other and he removes his hand and allows her to have the last cookie. And she smiles politely and, and kind of like laughs sheepishly. Then he looks down and realizes that she had bought the same bag of cookies that he did. And it was actually her bag of cookies that he was eating from. Oh. And he says, it turned out that I was the cookie thief. Oh. <laughs> and, and she was the enlightened one being patient with me. And oh, so wow. the first thing I would say is, per Joshua's uh, uh, rift there, is make sure you're not the cookie thief. Yeah, right? yeah. Make wow. sure you're not the cookie thief. I- I'll say one more thing too uh, about this community piece, and that is I-, I think the more monolithic your community is, the more likely it is that you will resent the members of that community when they don't meet your diverse range of needs. Mm. Um, and-, and the more likely it is that you will experience them in a draining way. So case in point, let's say, I'm hanging out with my wife and and she is the totality of my community. Well, there's a part of TK that enjoys discussing sports and my wife really isn't into that. If I don't have a community of people that are diverse enough to meet that part of me, then I'm going to put undue pressure on my wife to be something that she's not, which means I'm likely to resent her when she doesn't want to watch a basketball game with me. And it also means I'm likely to be drained by my interactions with her when I have a moment where what I need to be doing is watching sports. But instead, since she's my only community, I'm watching something that works for both of us. And I'm feeling like, man, like I know that I should be enjoying her presence, but I'm feeling drained by it. And so community needs diversity. And it sounds to me like what you're really saying when you say hanging with family is good for the kids, but not for us. It sounds like what you're saying is my kids love being around the family, but this is all that I have and I don't have anything else. I think you're less drained by your family and you're more drained by the fact that you have nothing else going on community wise. Mm. This is why C.S. Lewis called friendship the least jealous of loves. He says that friendship is a form of love where the more we have it, have of it, the better we are to the other ones that we already have. Wow. And so if yeah. I have a healthy relationship in one area, it makes it easier for me to have a healthy relationship in another area. Because if Josh says something that ticks me off, my healthy relationship with you can influence me to hear Josh in a different way that actually makes me laugh at what he said or whatever it may be. Mm. So you need more diversity in your community. Mm. Continue to spend time with the family because it's good for the kids. It's hard in but Iowa. but find ways to get out there and meet new people and uh and not put so much pressure on your family Mm -hmm. to make you happy and not put so much pressure on yourself to be happy with your family you can find some of that over online if you can't find it in your local community for whatever reason it can start online now it almost always transcends online i met tk online right we met jordan online right tinder uh, yeah, <laughs> the grinder. grinder yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I was searching for friends. Uh, uh, anyway, um, 
Yeah, we, we met online, but then it goes beyond online, right? And so I think the same is true with if you're on Patreon, that community tab is there. And not everyone in our Patreon community uses it, but you're welcome to use it. Maybe this is a call to be more proactive. The, these are all people. Anyone who's listened to this version of the podcast, this maximal episode, five or 6,000 people who, that's a lot of people, man. Mm -hmm. That fills up, you know, a, a small like arena. Yeah. And, and so when you think about it that way, Oh, there are five or 6,000 other people who are, who have open minds like me. They're asking some of the same questions. Wouldn't it be great to connect with them that way? And who knows? It could, you know, TK and us don't, we don't even live in the same city, but we're still good friends yeah. because we initially connected there and it went beyond simply the zeros and ones of the online world. There is a lot of that going in the community right now. And uh, yeah, if you would like to join in on that, like it's, it's, I do see it a lot on there. Yeah. Um, the one thing I'll say about the diverse people, diverse group of people you hang out with. So when I was in Missoula, I was in this bubble. What, what was the, do you remember the title of the podcast where we talked about kind of being in the bubble? Yes. Uh, I think it was about blame. I think, yeah. I think it was episode 33. Blame. Yeah. Nice. So go check out that episode. Cause Josh and I talk about how we were like living in this bubble. Yeah. And what I realized is that, you know, we do this kind of naturally we just want to hang out with people who are who are like minded, who have the same preferences. We you know we can talk about the same things, but it was actually to a detriment. And so because of that experience I had, again, go listen to episode thirty three if you want to like really dive into what I'm talking about here. But now I go out of my way to like I, I, I seek people who are really kind of opposite minded of me. Because it helps me see people in a different light. Like, you know, um, I'm, I'm like part of this men's team. And there's a man on this team who we are polar opposites on uh, ideologies and and uh, morals and, 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 other, and different things. But like being able to like we went camping together for a, a few days together. We uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, we bonded in, in, in some really awesome ways. And half the time I'm like, wow, this man is like really he's really amazing. And the other half of the time I'm like, God, this guy's a jerk. <laughs> but I'll tell you though, for someone who I just randomly meet on the street, who's a jerk, like it, it actually, like you said, like that relationship with him helped it tra transfers over to, to this random jerk on the street. Cause I could be like, you know what? I bet you this person actually is yeah. probably a good person in, in some way. And I can't just sit here and say, well, this person is an evil person because whatever. Right. We're it, all hypocrites to yeah, a degree, which 100%. is one of the sections in here toward the very end of the book. I think it might be the beginning of the epilogue here. Yeah, yeah. We are a co collage of contradictions. On one hand, I am a hypocrite. I'm a, I'm a minimalist, but I own a house, a couch, and more than one pair of shoes. Sometimes I avoid the truth, seek, seeking acknowledgement or praise or convenience instead. And I go on to you know sort of outline the, the different things there, but understanding, yes, the hypocrisy mm. and hold up a mirror and say, yeah, we're all that way. It gives me yeah. that compassion. A quick programming note about the archives real quick while we're on this subject. So we took our first 200 episodes and made them available to patrons. Eventually, we're going to take them off of public. Now, Ryan and I, we, we sort of came to a compromise on this. There's a section in the book about compromise, actually. <laughs> Initially, I just want to delete all 200 of our first 200 episodes Wow! and, and just move on. Yeah, let Declutter them from the internet, so to mm -hmm. speak. Interesting. And, and Ryan was like, why don't we do something like what Sam Harris does where the, you can 
give them to our patrons. There's no additional charge or whatever. No one's going to join Patreon just for those first 200 episodes. Mm -hmm. But let me explain why real quick, because as a patron, you might be wondering why, why, why did you make this change? The public episodes, you're getting rid of the first 200 episode zero through episode 199. Uh, we're, we're making them available. And by the way, they're available right now in your Patreon feed, the RSS feed. If you, uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes, the instructions on, if you're only watching this on Patreon, you can, of course, you can listen to, um, the RSS feed on any podcatcher that allows RSS. So Acast or Overcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc. Anyway, the reason I, I wanted to delete those, there's, there's a few reasons. One is, well, the biggest one is it's not the best place for folks to start. No. Our most recent episodes, like if you look at the overstuffed episode or the obligations episode or you know, the clean spaces episode, there are so many great episodes within the last 50 or so that's where i would prefer new listeners start unfortunately literally millions of people start with episode one of the podcast (laughs) and i think it's wow i'm not upset with the archives it's just like oh i don't want you to start with that and so many people start with that i don't know if it's out of ocd or we have linear thinking yes yes Yes. it's like oh i want to listen to 250 but i got to listen to those first 249 before i get there right which well now that you guys say you're gonna move them i'm gonna be up all night just like (laughs) chugging coffee trying to get through all the free episodes not worth it tk (laughs) like the the amount that i spend on coffee will be more than what it would take to pay for Patreon. here's the meme like the moment you learn tk isn't a patron (laughs) (laughs) wait you're not a patron What's he doing on this show? Get out of here. Uh, so so uh, I just wanted to add some clarity there. Initially, I just wanted to delete. And Ryan was like, well, what we could do is we could put like a little sample up. So we're going to do this eventually with the public episodes where it's just like, hey, if you do want the archives, they're not the best place to start. Start with episode, you know, whatever, 271. Or we'll, we'll even list here are the, the best seven to start with if you're a new listener. And then if you want to dive into the archives from there, they'll be available from you. We're not going to delete them forever, but we're going to put them on, on Patreon, not as an additional charge. You don't have to pay anything else. If you're a patron, you have, you have access to those. This isn't a, a ploy to monetize anything. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm fine with making money. We make money from Patreon. Mm-hmm. It's just not, that's not the driving factor. I simply didn't want hundreds of thousands or even millions of people starting with some episodes that aren't the best place to start. Right. Does that make sense? Totally. Totally. So what you're saying is, is that uh, what we're eventually going to do is abbreviate those first 200 episodes. Mm-hmm. And basically we're going to say, Hey, like if you like this, if you really want to finish this old podcast that we did, right. Go ahead on over to Patreon and, and finish it there. Right. And yeah. pro- probably I love even, how Sam Harris does that. Yeah. I think it's helpful. And, and I think probably we even start the episode like, Hey, Hey, just so you know, we've moved our full archives over there. So people don't feel like I don't want I don't want people to feel like they have to start with right. the beginning. So if you start with episode one, fine it'll a little thing will pop up or uh, our voice will say hey we want you to know episode one is not the best place to start with the minimalist Mm -hmm. podcast do yourself a favor try one of these seven episodes first there's a few reasons for that we've been doing the podcast for six years now and we've gotten a lot better on mic but also like the 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 conversation around stuff has become more nuanced our understanding has become deeper and we can help people in a more robust nuanced way now than we could before and i would say some of those initial episodes would have even contained some dogma that i'm not completely happy with it's fine Mm -hmm. as a as an example of our evolution and understanding that evolution i just simply wouldn't start there yeah let's move on to the 
We have a question here from oh from Moxie. This is this is a good one. Mm, I think this is more of a comment than a question, right? Yes. This is good though. My most tense relationship is with people. I'm 55 and divorced. I'm very happily single and will probably never live with anyone ever again. The stress of maintaining a relationship, it's not worth it. Definitely never getting married again. I know people say one day I'll find somebody, but I don't really care if I do or don't. My happiness revolves around me and my life. This almost sounds like super selfish. Almost. It's, almost. It's not. Yeah. It's actually, in a way, it's kind of selfless. Yeah. Well, yeah. L- let's say let's say for a second that it is selfish. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just say that. So what? Yeah. And, and so we've moralized that as well, right? Yeah. We, we've said, oh, to be selfish is immoral. It's wrong. It's evil. It hurts others. Well, it depends on what you mean by selfish. And if by selfish, you, you mean that I you put my own oxygen mask on first. Oh, it gives me the ability to help other people, right? Yeah. Now, oh. now it could be that with Moxie, if you're in a marriage, maybe it has degraded your ability to be kind, compassionate, et cetera, with other people. Mm. You know, I, I, I read this comment and I actually have the reverse in my own life. I, I don't say definitely never, but um, when when... I think it's a, a, a woman, Moxie, says, I'm definitely never getting married again. When they say that, you know what? I say I'm definitely never going to live with someone full time again. But mm. I, I, I even make the space to say I, I'm open to change my mind about that. I don't anticipate ever living with someone full time again. And I'm married with kids mm-hmm. and with kid. And, and I don't anticipate ever living with someone else full time again. Now, part of that is because I have a better understanding of myself mm-hmm. and I can be the best version of myself. So mm-hmm. as Ryan said, it can seem selfish at first, yeah. but really maybe it's the most compassionate thing because I'm able to show up with the people I love mm-hmm. if I could do that in small doses, if I'm a sprinter and not a marathon yeah. runner. In fact, if you, if you you take that analogy into the real world right now. I could leave here right now today. I've never run more than three miles in my life. Mm. But if, if I left here today and you had a gun to my head and said, you know, I'm going to kill your family if you don't run a marathon. Okay. I'd find a way to do it. Sure. And my body would break down. I'd be miserable. It'd be terrible. It'd be awful. But I'd find a way to run a marathon. Yeah. Well, are we all doing that right now? Yeah. Or even like take this up further. You got to run a marathon and then record a podcast directly after. Okay. Like you would not have the strength. Right. Right. To, to, to re- I mean, you, yeah, of course you would do it, but you're yes. not, it, the, the quality would be so low. Right. Yeah. Now I could sprint down the block and run back and record a podcast. Sure. And, and so I think understanding that like, oh, I'm a better sprinter than I'm a marathon runner. Other people, they prefer to run the marathon. That's not wrong. Mm-hmm. It's simply their preference. Yeah. yeah. I'd be the guy to be like, can I just do a podcast about marathons? (laughs) (laughs) Can I just spell marathon? Now, like I said, one other thing here, TK, I want to get your thoughts on this. The the problem we have is when we say things like definitely never getting married again. Anthony DeMello would say that Mm. as soon as you renounce something, you're forever tied to it. Ooh. Yeah, that's right on the money. A couple of things. So first, with your point about selfishness, um, so many things are all a matter of what do you mean when you say that? Yes. And and selfishness is one of those things. It, it often is used to convey the idea of exploitation. Selfishness is when I pursue my own well-being at the expense of other people. Yes. Mm-hmm. That kind of selfishness, no good. Ayn Rand defined selfishness when she talks about the virtue of selfishness as the pursuit of one, the unapologetic pursuit of one's own self-interest, which inevitably leads to generosity. 
you know, there's a quote that says, give from your excess, not your essence. That kind of selfishness is powerful and healthy. It's it's true love Mm -hmm. because you're making sure that you take care of you and that giving is not this process that leads to resentment because you are compromising your own health. But giving is is this process that begins with the cultivation of your own well-being and then you help other people from a state of being an overflow. Mm. And so I think selfishness in that sense is very good, very healthy. Also, if this person were 19 years old, I'd be much more concerned. Mm. Sure. Because I, I, I would have questions about how much of a chance they have given to the things that they are rejecting. You, you want to make sure that if you're making strong commitments to like never do this, never do that, that you have some experience behind you. And maybe a 19 year old has those reasons, but I would at least have some questions. But sure. re- regarding the, the whole thing of I definitely won't. So I think this is probably more of a passionate expression of genuine conviction that she has, which probably has to be conveyed defensively to the people around her who just don't get it because she even says in her comment that people say things like, Oh, I'm sure you'll find the right person. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when, when you say things like, yeah, I don't think I want to get married again. People will tend to say, Oh, don't be so hard on marriage. I'm sure you'll find someone. I know it's right for you. Yeah. 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 And sometimes it takes a little bit of look, I'm definitely not doing it as kind of a boundary line to let people know, stop trying to change me. I know what I want. And I'm cool with it. Mm -hmm. I don't think she's, I don't get the impression that she's saying that she could never conceivably fall in love again. I think she's just saying, Hey, I know myself. I know that I'm not interested in that whole full-time thing. I'm, I'm happy and content with being single. And I do not view my single status as a curse or a prison that I need to escape from. Yeah. 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 She, uh, it sounds like it doesn't sound selfish as much as it sounds like self-acceptance. Like she's accepted the fact like, Oh, this is what makes me live my best life. Mm-hmm. And I agree, TK. It sounds like if someone walked through the door and gave this person like the perfect vibe and they're like, oh, wow, like this is what people mean when they when they talk about marriage and relationships. Yeah. But, you know, it's like I was talking about this the other day. Like, man, this is like this is so it's, it's sad, but it's also not sad. But I can't think of one relationship, not one that I'm like, oh, I want Mariah and I to be that relationship. Mm. Like mm. when it comes to long-term relationships, like they're all misery. Mm. I've, I, again, there's not one ideal couple that I can look at and be like, oh, that's the relationship that I want. But, but what I do understand I is like that calling out you and Bex right now, because <laughs> no, he I'm, keeps looking at you and be like, there isn't a single there, relationship. No, no, it's yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm really calling out you. I'm really, calling, I I'm really like. calling out you and your wife, TK. <laughs> <laughs> Is it time to get to that story oh, already? Oh, man, I hope Sorry. it is. I hope it is. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, so, Jordan, his mic's not getting in the in TK's shot, is it? Okay, cool. Cool. Uh, so, so for me and Mariah, though, what I do understand fully, though, is that I am an extrovert. I love having people in my life. I love Mariah. But with any relation, every relationship brings misery. In fact, we can, we could, uh, I can model this onto friendships. I can't really think of like, I mean, there's, there's always exceptions to the rule, right? But even when I think of friendships, there's not like a, the, the perfect friendship is, is the, or the most perfect friendship is, I believe is Josh and, and my friendship, yeah. but it still yeah. isn't perfect. Right. Yeah. So, so it's like with, with any of this, like, I just think, you know, there does come to a, there does just come to a point where, uh, where Moxie has, where she's like, Hey, look, I'm going to be a better person if I don't 
try to force a relationship that that uh, I know isn't going to make me happy. That's there's nothing wrong with that. It's again, mm-hmm. it's not it's not selfish. It's I think she's just or he has come to a I'm pretty sure it's a she has come to a self acceptance of what helps him flourish in life. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. Mm. I do like your I do like the Anthony DeMello quote though, that that point about not being dogmatic about our definitely's and nevers. Mm-hmm. You know? As soon as we renounce something, we're forever tethered to it. Yeah. You know, and it's the the reason that I think people sometimes get discontented with the stuff is because they thought the stuff was going to make them happy. And then well, it didn't. So now the decluttering is going to make mm, me happy. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, 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 no. That's going to create the space, the freedom. But the freedom is also not the same thing as happiness either, right? Freedom can be a kind of tyranny if you misunderstand what freedom is, mm-hmm. right? If you think, if your expectation for freedom is everything's going to be easy breezy mm-hmm. now, or I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. No, 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 no. That's mm-hmm. playing in traffic. Yeah. That, that, that's that, that's f- real freedom, right? If doing whatever you want, whenever you want. And and that's, that's the problem. In fact, there's a whole section here about freedom and faux freedom and we try to make that that distinction Mm. i I may not find the section but um there's this whole thing in there about about faux freedom and i think that's important so it's getting pretty hot in here and we have a few more questions and we're talking about relationships tk how do you feel about this story do you want to open up at all or is now not the time now it's not the time okay so we respect Ah, that we respect that we're gonna uh, see this is his ploy to oh i want to be the 10th guest (laughs) (laughs) first person visit yeah Yeah. Hey, hey listen Nine is fine, uh-huh. but the only word that rhymes with win is 10. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, TK will have a story for you next time. Okay. But we have some questions here. Let's get into Alice's question. My most tense relationship is with criticism. Why is the risk of criticism or rejection so unbearable to me? There's only one reason. It's because you require praise or mm-hmm. acceptance. Mm-hmm. And accepting other people is different from needing acceptance from other people mm. accepting other people as ryan said earlier so beautifully my favorite part of this whole episode so far is when he said acceptance is love um because that's that's the truth accepting someone for who they are warts and all see to love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them getting back on that because this is the love people use things episode and and so if you love someone you don't try to change them there's this saying that coercion is not consent. Neither is persuasion, right? Mm. And so we, we try to, and we often tell ourselves we are being loving. And we need that love, that respect. We need that tolerance, that care, that appreciation mm. from someone else. And as soon as you need that, you can no longer enjoy it. It's turning the thing that is so enjoyable into a chase well a chase is always a type of pleasure a chase is always a pleasure chase nothing mm-hmm. wrong with pleasure but it's so much more rewarding when it emanates from the joy of what's going on than if you need it and begin to chase it mm. man can you read that one more time yeah ellis says my most tense relationship is with criticism why is the risk of criticism or rejection so unbearable to me i used to be alice I totally relate relate with this. I think we all were Alice. Yeah. The risk of criticism. That the that risk. wording is interesting. Yeah. It, it seems like Alice is contemplating or considering possibilities that might require her to have confrontations 
with criticism that mm. she now may have the luxury of avoiding. What I would say is that there are two possibilities. Either your critics are wrong mm. and you are burdened by the need to be rightly understood mm -hmm. or your critics are right and you're burdened by the need to conceal your flaws and avoid confrontation with areas where you need work. Yeah. If it's the former, your critics are wrong and you're burdened by the need to be rightly understood. I think Josh just nailed it. I think you have to release yourself from the belief that you need the approval or affection of those people in order to be the best possible version of yourself. There is a form of meaning, a form of success that is available to you, even in a world where there are groups of people who look at you and say, but I don't like it. Name your favorite musician. You can easily go find people who hate them. I, I have this exercise, and I talked about it on a previous episode before, where at least a few times every year, I pick some artist or some piece of work that I really like, and I conduct an experiment to see how long will it take me to find someone online talking smack about them. Mm. It has mm. never taken me 60 seconds. Mm. Wow. It doesn't matter what the movie is, what the person is. All I got to do is Google like search terms. Like, I don't know, g give me an, an actor. If it's Matt Damon, if I think of him, like someone I respect, I just look up Matt Damon fraud, Matt Damon gossip, Matt Damon something. Yeah. And it's easy for me to find someone that just thinks that he's overrated or thinks that he's a mean person or something like that. And it's a reminder to me that if my heroes, if the people that I look up to and respect are not able to avoid this, then it is also true that I will not be able to avoid it. Mm -hmm. To embrace criticism is also to embrace what it means to be a creator. Being criticized is the chain that links us together with all of the other people who have ever, ever made a difference. There's an entire section in here called Be Prepared for Criticism. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's a quote from Charlemagne to God. He said, uh, you're never as good as they say. You're never as bad as they say either. Mm. I like that. And so yep. uh, humbling yourself as well, because the, the need for that criticism, you know, Matt Diavel always says, just remember some people think Dave Chappelle isn't funny. And, yeah. and th that's always helped contextualize criticism <laughs> yeah. for me as yeah. well. Yeah. Right. I meet people who they're like, Oh yeah. He like, you know, whatever they don't like about him. I'm like, it's so weird how you get hung up on that one little thing. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and so anyway. as soon as you remember that, like even the greats as TK says have, critics in fact they're going to have far more critics the mm. alternative is to not produce anything meaningful and that's what that section really talks about in the book is like you sort of have two options here create and be criticized mm -hmm. or produce nothing meaningful yeah the choice is yours you can't yeah. do both yeah it's absolutely true in, in case oh sorry I'm no sorry. no I'm you go like, for it man you, you got it man you're no, a no, guest no. man you, you go you, no come on bro no dude continue with that thought i was gonna bifurcate Ladies and gentlemen, T.K. Coleman. <laughs> oh, shoot, man. Okay. In case your critics are right, mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's important to not over-dramatize the process of revealing your flaws along the way because people are very forgiving of your process when you create something that's great. So sometimes people, when they start off writing or creating they're afraid that they're going to write something that's so terrible that no one will ever take them seriously again. But if you write something that's terrible and you get criticized and you learn from that criticism and then you produce something great, the world isn't going to say, no, I'm not going to read this great book because the first one that you wrote was crap. 
The reason we know this is true is because all of the creators that you like and look up to had a point in time where they just weren't that good. Yeah. Uh, Timothy Ferris talks about this with his podcast, that if you go back and listen to like the first couple of episodes of his mm-hmm. podcast, it just wasn't that polished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, he did this episode with Tony Ro- Robbins early on. Oh, I don't know if you remember this. He's panned the audio. So it was like Tony speaking in the left ear and then oh my Tim God. speaking in the right ear. Which offended Jordan, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it was a solo podcast. So yeah. for those of you listening, Jordan uh, is missing an eardrum in his left ear. His right ear, wait, no, his right ear is the wrong ear. His left ear is the right ear, <laughs> I, I think. Yeah. Anyway, happy three-year anniversary, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> Just recognize that the ability to learn is capable of overcoming yeah the 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 flaws that you reveal along the way while you're learning don't don't look at people's correct constructive feedback as something that that the world is going to be unforgiving about just keep learning keep growing and make sure you have standards for who you will accept criticism from mm-hmm. you know best advice I ever received is decide who you want to be a hero for and ignore everyone else like if is you're should yeah. night <laughs> <laughs> That's the story I'll tell in another episode. That's yeah. a great, on my 10th episode, I can tell such, the Suge Knight story. That's such good advice. He does have a Suge Knight story, so we'll save that oh, for, two, for the next two okay, Suge Two Suge Knight stories. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. But, but um, now I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, I'm but, sorry. No, no, no. no. Suge Knight said. Uh, <laughs> decide who you want to be a hero for and ignore everyone else. Yeah. Um, Seth Godin says that for any given product, you should not only ask who is it for, but who is it not for. Mm. And and you should develop a vocabulary for who it's not for. If you're writing a science fiction script, don't waste your time with critics who hate all science fiction and only say negative things, even about the works of the greatest science fiction authors. Right. right? Listen to people that actually consume science fiction, who actually enjoy it because their criticism will help you get better. So have a boundary line for who you'll take criticism from and then use it to get better. And yeah. also the, the needing of the praise, I go back to that because you can understand that they might be correct about the thing they're saying about you. They might criticize your work in a way where it brings you an insight and you can then use that, yep. but still not needing their praise. Like, like I love the, the, the science fiction thing because you could spend all of your time working to appease those people and you may even do it. Let's say right. you appease the, the critics but your work isn't for them anyway. Now, all of a sudden you've appeased the people who aren't going to support you (laughs) and you've forgotten about the people who do support you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's good, man. That's really good. The guy who takes the time to explain the joke to the person in the audience who does not get it takes away from the hundreds of people who did loses the rest of the audience. Amen. Yeah, it's so true. So what I, I was going to talk about, well, it's funny because you talk about feedback and there's a difference between criticism and feedback. Mm. Like criticism is the seagull effect. Someone like flies in, they shit on what you do and then they fly off. <laughs> and like, there's, there's nothing there that's helpful. Most of the time there might be yeah. some kind of insight, but feedback is when someone, they talk about what they disliked and then they give you a solution. Like, Hey, here's how maybe you want to approach it you know, in the future. And even then not all feedback is necessarily true, but, it, but that's what helps me differentiate between, you know, criticism and feedback. And when I do get feedback, I will look in the mirror and be like, Oh, does this person have an actual point? But I'll tell you like with our documentary less is now there's two reviews I've stumbled across that were just like trashing the documentary. And one of them was like one of my favorite NPR segments, which is movies of the week. 
And yeah. I was like, and they were like, oh, we're going to. You were in the car listening in the to car, the radio. Yeah, Mariah and I were driving home from a friend's house. It was on Christmas. It was like 10 o'clock at night. We were oh, leaving man. a friend's house that we spent Christmas with. And they're like, and next we're going to review Less Is Now by The Minimalist. And NPR, like, they usually, like, love us. Like, yeah. the crowd likes us, right? Like, we're doing a radio tour with them this week. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I'm wow. like, I'm expecting, like, oh, let's see what they have to say in, like, the two critics. Yeah, you were like, is it going to be great or is it going to be outstanding? Right, exactly. <laughs> and these two critics, well, they were very critical. Wow. Uh, very, I don't know, man. It, something gets to me with the pretentious air that these two specific hosts had. Uh, the New Yorker has a lot of this pretentious air sure. in, in it. Um, so, righteousness. Yeah, righteousness. And it really, and, and it, 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 there's space that I can hold where I can be like, man, fuck these guys. You know what I'm saying? I don't project that uh mm. because i also understand that like that's a they're just saying something that i might see true uh in myself and then and then i have to i had to just stop from letting that feeling escalate because that doesn't that that never helps the problem that never solves it so i can hold a space and be like okay these are a couple pretentious guys and yeah that's a little frustrating but you know what this message isn't that movie wasn't for them yeah. and that's okay yeah like the thing is yeah. and really my answer to Alice's question is, Alice, the reason why you feel this way is because you you are having a hard time accepting and loving yourself. And it's real simple to be like, accept and love yourself, but it's a lot of hard work to get there. Yeah, you can't do it. It's 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 in the sense like, here are the seven ways to accept and love yourself, right? right? Yeah. Step one. Actually, I mean, I will tell you, like, again, simple but not easy, is the way to love yourself is it's the same way you live a meaningful life. Your short-term actions align with your values. Because my my friend, he uh, he's like, oh man, my son was so excited. He was listening. This is the other critical review. Uh, my son was so excited. He's he, There's a YouTuber he always watches. And uh, this YouTuber started talking about you. And he was like, hey, isn't that the guy that comes over and plays Catan with us? And blah. he's like, yeah, that's right. He's like, oh, wow, that's crazy. Blah, blah, blah. He's like, but wait a minute. Like, wait, so do you consider yourselves minimalists, dad? Like, and then he's got a stepmom. And they're like, yeah, I mean, we kind of, we, we try to live deliberately. We, we try to not focus on things. We try to focus on experience. That's crazy to me. Like his son, like wasn't getting it. So he came to me and he's like, hey man, um, you ever think about having this particular YouTuber on your, on your podcast or something like to try and change his mind? And I'm like, no, man, oh. like I'm not, we, I'm not in the business of changing minds. Yeah. Uh, his thoughts are for him. Mm-hmm. His commentary is for him. And I, someone had DM'd me the YouTube video Hey, this thing's blowing up on YouTube. Have you seen it? Mm. 2.3. something million views. And I'm like, oh, let's check it out. And it's just this guy like with a very narrow point of view, you know, shredding our our documentary. Mm-hmm. But again, I have to look at that and say, mm. hey, this this is not for him. That's and that's okay. Because at the end of the day, because my my buddy again asked me, like, how do you get over this? How do you get over the criticism? He's like, that's really what I'm trying to get to here, Ryan. He's like, how do you deal with when someone shreds you like that. And by the way, with with the perspective that they're the lens that they're looking through, they're not wrong with some of the things they were saying. And 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 the, my answer to that is, look, I it took me a long time to really love this guy right here. And now that I have this deep appreciation for who I am mm. and this deep uh, uh respect for who I am, like I can look in the mirror and really ask myself, like, is what he does, what he say hold any weight with the way that I'm living my life or the way I should live my life? And if the answer is no, like it holds no weight whatsoever, 
it's easy for me to let go of that criticism. It's easy for me to let go of that rejection. So again, Alice, there's something deeper going on with you that you haven't been able to accept and love yourself. And the way that you start to accept and love yourself is your short-term actions aligning with those long-term values. And also uh, adding in the expectations part of that. Mm. Because the, the way for you to align those actions and values is to realize that maybe some of the expectations you have of yourself mm-hmm. are so unnecessary, they're actually getting in the way of you loving you. Oh, dude, that's we were doing mm. this breath work uh, class yesterday. How'd that go with J- uh, uh, Jacob Sokol? Yeah, it was great with uh, Sense of You. It was awesome, man. I had this realization that I have expectations with myself when it comes to creative endeavors that it actually is a detriment. And I realized, I'm like, oh, wow, like I have to stop putting so many expectations on what I, I should be sp- studying Spanish. I should be practicing guitar. I should be uh, whatever. I should be trying to do comedy, whatever it is. Like the, it's so overwhelming that it actually kind of stumbles me a little bit. But just to your point, Josh, like we do have to be careful with the expectations we throw on ourselves uh, and really be able to like decipher whether or not like that's something that we actually need to do to live a meaningful life or if it's something that uh, we're putting unnecessary pressure on ourselves. So Alice, you got to love yourself. I love you. Josh loves you. TK might love you. (laughs) No, we love you. We all love you. You just got to love yourself. Alice, your, your work matters. Your voice matters. Your creative contribution matters. There are people in this world whose lives will be changed by what you create for no other reason than that you were the one who created it. And so even if it's possible to find someone that's better than you at whatever it is you want to do, your mission field, the people that you're going to reach are unique to you. And sometimes we can focus so much on the thousand and one people who don't like something, who have something negative to say, and we can overlook the one life that we change, that we radically transform by just being ourselves. I I had an experience like you where I, I wrote a Facebook post um, about a, a very negative, traumatic experience my wife and I had when we were pulled over by a couple of cops. We were, it was a Friday night and we were heading to a comedy club. We were in a good mood. We were having a great night. And I, I wrote the article. I'm not going to verbatim recite it here, but we were both pulled out of our cars. I was handcuffed. I was put in the back of the squad car. I was asked questions that were very condescending. Mm. Uh, one cop asked me several times, you sure you ain't got no baby mama drama? I mean, just like insulting stuff like that. Wow. My wife was outside of the car, frisked, had her purse like dumped, you know, um, wow. be- because they were convinced that there was something going on here, that there was a drug thing. You know, maybe she was a prostitute. Maybe I'm a drug dealer. What's whatever it may be. Wow. We were not ticketed. Um, there was no kind of infraction. And when the experience was over, um, I somehow found the strength to ask very meekly, is there, uh, is there a reason why we're pulled over? And one of the cops says, we were just checking something out. And I, I did not have the courage to show visible anger or anything. Cause mm-hmm. I was still afraid. And yeah. my mind was, let me just get back in this car and just hope I get to safety. Now I wrote that as a Facebook post And I took what I thought was a very nuanced, apolitical approach. And anybody who knows me knows that I don't ever intend for my views to be used to put one partisan point over another. Yeah. You're not Um, trying to fuel an ideology. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, I'm not trying to, yeah, 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 exactly. And so I wrote it as a Facebook post and then um, an editor from Fee uh, took it and wrote it as an article with my permission, it was all good. And then Newsweek picked it up from there. Okay. Oh, wow. And this thing went viral. And my Facebook posts, I haven't seen anything like it. It was literally like ding, 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 ding. Um, I, I think it had like a few thousand shares. Don't quote me on this. But like the number of shares, the number of likes, the number of comments, like pages worth. Wow. Okay. And there were some pretty negative, nasty things that people said to me about it. Yeah. And there was one guy who wrote this full article, literally titled, TK Coleman is a piece of shit. <laughs> and he had pictures of me, pictures of my wife, called me a liar, took my story, ripped it into shreds. You know, mm. like there's one version where I said, you know, something happened at 8.30, another version where I said it happened around eight. And he's like, oh, see, I caught this guy in a contradiction. Um, he was like, and where's his wife? Like, I see a picture. He's supposed to have a wife, but his wife ain't on Facebook. Like, is he making her up? Is mm. he hiding her for mm. some reason? And <laughs> I remember reading that and I was just like, <laughs> yeah. And you ever seen that that Giphy of the cat that's like on the typewriter, just like responding to people on the internet? Yeah. Um, I felt like that cat, and and I literally sat down, man, and I spent like two hours writing down the longest thing I've ever written. Mm. It could have been a book, bro. Mm. I wrote like fifteen page response, mm. and I dissected everything he said line by line to give it a refutation. And there was literally nobody in my life that was impressed by it. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody in my life who knows that I wrote that has either made fun of me for that mm. or told me that I wasted my time. Mm. I literally didn't get the respect or appreciation or support of a single person who loved me as a result of writing that. Mm. Uh, if anything, they might've felt a little less sympathy. Like, dude, you just wasted your own time. Writing right. that guy. Yeah. The guy himself didn't change. He just wrote another article. Just oh basically they're like, well, this guy sure loves to see himself talk, you know, yeah. and just like dismissed me. Mm. I gained no value from that. But here's the crazy thing. After all of that, nothing changes the fact that there was a woman who sent me a private Facebook message saying, I have been through some traumatic abusive experiences that no one in my family knows about. Mm. Because of your article, I'm gonna sit down with my husband tonight mm. and talk to him about some things that he needs to know. Yeah. The number of messages I received like that, they weren't in the thousands, they mm. weren't in the hundreds. There was maybe about, maybe a dozen messages like that at mm. best. The critic was the loudest. Yeah, I remember that guy's name. Yeah. What was the name of the woman that sent me that message about how much I changed her life? Wow. And so psychologically, it can be so easy to focus on the people that tear us apart on NPR or that tear us apart in Newsweek mm -hmm. and that call us names or say you wasted your time with that piece of work. But nothing can take away the fact that when you show up in a self-authentic way and you tell your story and you share what you have to offer, there's someone out there that's going to engage that and it's going to change their lives and give them the permission to be who they were born to be and focus on that. That's what makes the criticism worth putting up with. Yeah. Don't Man. need it though. And and the words that, that 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 guy wrote to, you know, the TK Coleman is a piece of shit. Those words are for him. Yeah. They're not for you. Yeah. Right. They're not for anyone else. They're really for him. Right. And that's that's with any critic. Yeah. Because my, my reaction to the NPR and that YouTuber is I want to be like, no, 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 like why are you harping on minimalism living with nothing? Because that's really what they were harping on. I don't they don't understand. Like that's not what Josh and I are about. But again, it's like they, there, there are the things 
They're the way things are. They're the way things that critics want them to be. Yeah. And what they will do is they will find any angle, any lie, any misunderstanding to, to keep their attitude of the way they want things to be. They don't want to see things for the way they are. And that's, again, that's for them. That's not for me. Yeah. That's a perfect segue into Hannah's question, by the way. All right, let's do it. Hannah, my most tense relationship is with truth. People often do things like lie by omission, deceive by telling you what you want to hear, and act like the right thing is whatever they can get away with. Mm. Man, it's like she's describing you, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) As you say. Yeah, the reason I wanted to punctuate what what TK said, uh, because it's so beautiful what Mm. you were able to accomplish there. The moment that you need it, though, it becomes another chase. And yeah. so that's why the criticism hurts. Honest to God, I hear if I heard that NPR thing today, it wouldn't uh, affect me. But also, the person who comes up on the street and hugs me and thanks me, it doesn't affect me. Mm. Now, in the sense that I don't need it. I'm grateful for it. Mm-hmm. And, and But I, I, know, I no longer... And by the way, I needed it hard for a long time. Significance is like the thing that drives yeah. me the most. That NPR article... Mm-hmm. Before it came out about minimalism, mm-hmm. like we're talking just five years ago, mm-hmm. it had like it had, it had ruined my day, it ruined my night for sure. I'd be like typing up a response. I'm writing NPR. Yeah, but n- now that now that I don't need it, I can enjoy it. So that's what you're talking about. You get that DM. Yeah, you enjoy that. It makes you feel a particular way. But and, then and now I assume that even when I don't get that DM. I assume that someone somewhere is impacted at that level. Yes. I assume it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, is like, those are the people you focus, you focus on the audience. Yeah. You focus on the people, the, on the people who are in the arena watching you. The, everyone else, they're not even in the arena, man. They're not even trying. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, do we need it? No. Does it, I mean, I know what you're saying, Josh, but when someone comes up to me and they're like, oh man, I saw, I saw your documentary it changed my life. Thank you so much. I love that. Yeah. Like I really love having that interaction with people. And honestly, if it was just one person who said that to me, yeah. like you said, that one DM like that for me would make it worth it because I didn't tell this story to not be heard. We don't record this podcast to not be heard. That's like true. we record this podcast because we want to share something that Josh and I find to be meaningful yeah. and other people, when they get something out of it, it helps me it actually, and what I always say to people when they come up and say that, I'll be like, this is why we do what we do. Mm. So thank you so much for coming up and saying something to me because that's the exact reason why Josh and I do all the things that we do with our books and documentaries and podcasts. Um, yeah, cool. it's it's important to focus on the people who are in the arena watching. Like that's the audience. And as soon as you start giving that, the, 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 the protesters at, on the outside of the stadium as soon as you start to give them attention yeah. like yeah you're taking away from like the, the audience who's watching yeah i've seen it myself uh, 2017 was a year where we had we ryan and i accidentally became famous in 2017 like that's sort of what happened. i'm sure the first time you heard about us was probably with the netflix documentary but uh that's how most people heard about us and like it got to a point where i really enjoyed the fact that we made, we made this film didn't anticipate any more, more people would see it than our existing audience that we had built. Right. But a lot of people saw it. And so much so that I was getting recognized a dozen times a day. And, and then I started saying, well, how do I replicate this? And that enjoyment became the chase that we were talking about earlier. Mm. Right. And that there was a disingenuousness to that because as soon as you need the thing, now the prey or now the, the criticism hurts so much more. Yeah. Because, mm. Oh, 
I'm doing this for the praise. If I'm doing it for the praise, then I'm always going to feel terrible by any time there's a little cavil or jab Mm -hmm. that is utterly meaningless, as TK already illustrated. Our most viewed YouTube videos, I think, are the home tours. It's your home tour. Mm. Okay. And if we were chasing views... We wouldn't be having this conversation. A whole bunch of home tours. Exactly. We would switch over to like, oh, people really like the the home tours. So we need to start talking about architecture and art and the top seven ways to minimize your closet. Right. Sure. That's it. Yeah. It's it's uh yeah. That's that's a dangerous trap right now. That's Mm -hmm. a very tempting trap right now Mm -hmm. to prioritize views and metrics so much that you start to think in terms of well, what's going to be hot? What do people want to see? And, and you start conforming to what people already know they want. And that compromises your ability to give the world something unique. You're here to give the world something that hasn't been seen, that hasn't been heard, that they don't know that they want. And then when you give it to them, they say, wow, you've never existed before. Mm-hmm. And you say, that's right. That's right. It's the first time I've been here. Right. And, and so mm. when we when we think about this, you say it's difficult. It's a trap that we get caught in. It's not difficult if you have the... The understanding yeah. that that society has defined success by metrics. Now, you and I and Ryan, we don't define success that way, but society writ large yeah. that it's oh, how many followers, how much money in the bank account, how many retweets, how many whatever. It's always metric based, right? Mm-hmm. Accomplishments, stuff, etc. How many of this do you have? And then we presuppose that is what is going to make us happy. Yeah. And so one of the supposed shortcuts. In fact, one of the things I like about this book here is we have these minimal maxims throughout the book. Uh, if you look at the, the print version here and one of the minimal maxims here on page 76 is there are no shortcuts. There are only direct paths. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about, it, we're thinking that there's a shortcut to happiness, i.e. success, you know, via yeah. happiness, via success by getting the metrics. And then you get yeah. the million views, by the way, there's all, any video that has a million views is automatically suspect because there's bot farms and comment farms and all this other stuff. So you're comparing yourself. All of most videos that have more than a million views are illegitimate views. So be clear about that. Mm. Most of them. Yeah. Maybe even the vast majority of them, especially if we're looking at the music business, it's all inflated. Now, and if you're getting your sense of self worth from fraudulent behavior, then how strong is that foundation in the first place? Mm. Hannah's question, I think, revolves around this. Hannah, get back to her question, says, her most tense relationship was the truth. I would say it's with truth in other people, right? She said, people often do things like lie by omission, deceive by telling you what you want to hear, and act like uh, the right thing is to do whatever they can get away with. And now, I I would say that, well, the people in your life do that, Hannah, because mm-hmm. you've chosen to accept the people and allow them to lie to you. Yeah. You don't have to tolerate that. There, in fact, we even talk about this in the book. Ryan mentioned the, the Terra acronym earlier, but there's certain behaviors we do not have to tolerate. Mm-hmm. Racism, lies, hatred, abuse. We don't have to tolerate these things. And so there are certain things that aren't worth tolerating. And if you've set a boundary, so I'm not going to tolerate that, then... All of a sudden, you won't be dealing with any of these people anymore, Hannah. Mm. Here's an excerpt from Love People Use Things. It's called Comfort is a Liar. My marriage was over years before it was over. At first, I didn't know it was ending. 
So that's the, the beginning of a section <laughs> here. Now, I, I just wanted to bring that up real quick. There's a whole section in there about my marriage ending. Now, when I say it was over years before it was over, Hannah, that might be where you're at with these relationships right now. They could be over, and now they're just the ghosts of relationships past. Mm. And they're lingering right now because you choose to allow those entities into your life. But they're certainly not thriving because, well, part of the onus, I mean, unfortunately, it is on you to determine who is in your life. And if you tolerate the lies, then the liars will keep lying. Yeah. Mm. There was a, there was a, there was some wording there. Can you read? Uh... People often do things like lie by omission, yes. deceive by telling you what you want to hear, and act like the right thing is whatever they can get away with. Be careful with the absolutism. I'm not nitpicking. I'm not calling you out on semantics, but just using your language as a as a window to to understand your your thought patterns. Whenever people say you know things like you know, you know, people don't show respect. People don't want to compensate properly. People don't, it's, it, it's, it's a, it's a way of universalizing a personal experience that you're, you're having Amen. And, 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 it, and it can cause you to see the world in such a way uh, that, that makes you think everybody is like the people that you have been exposed to. And what I want to say is there is more to the world than the people that are part of your current social network. And when you talked about your relationship with the truth being difficult, it didn't sound like it was about you telling the truth. It sounded like it was about people in your life that are not being truthful. And like Josh said, you, you got to find some different people. Yeah. You know? and, and maybe that's a great point, TK. Hmm. Maybe the fact that you're also not being truthful attracts the the people who aren't being truthful as well. What, what I that hear, was the case in my own life. Yeah. What I hear in Hannah's, comment is uh someone's hurt her before she's been hurt by people yeah so now she doesn't want to be hurt again so when she starts to get close to someone she has to remind herself be careful people often do these things yes um I, this it, to me it just goes back to well, what i told victoria hannah assume the best out of people because here's the thing someone comes up to me right and they're like hey man i like i got I, my car is down the street my wife and kids are down there and they got like a gas can i just need like five bucks man for this gas can i mean that's like the most common grifter story i i, I hear right yeah and sometimes if i got the five bucks i'm like here you go and i just assume like oh i helped out him and his family mm. now i can suspect and probably is so that this guy's just trying to get me for five dollars but i don't ever regret like if i have the five dollars to give i'm not going to regret giving that person, you know, the five, but I'm never going to look back and say, Oh man, like, Oh, he got me. Oh, I want to make sure I'd never get God again. Mm. Um, I mean, there, there are, there are ways and, and there are some precautions that one should take with, uh, how they should act towards people. That's not what I'm saying about your actions. What I'm talking about is the assumptions you make of people assume the best. And that is always, that is always going to set you free in, in, in any type of, I don't know. Uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, there's a pretense. There's a, there is a an angle. Like people are looking. Hey, what's your angle? Like, don't don't yeah. assume people have an angle. Yeah, you don't want to question their intentions. At the same yeah. time, in that scenario, I would ask: Is this the best use of this five dollars? Sure. Uh, and right. I think maybe that that's a way to yes. approach. In in some scenarios, yeah, absolutely, it's the right. best use of that five dollars. But if you get hoodwinked by every. Uh, random Joe who walks up to you and asks for five dollars, 
well, then at some point you're going to end up broke, you know, yeah. eventually on a long enough timeline that's going to happen. Right. And so, so asking, you know, some questions that are relevant here, I think will help Hannah will help set her free mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. yeah. And, and for that example, like if you are passionate about eliminating poverty, helping the homeless, there are some ways that you can use your financial resources towards that cause that don't involve giving away $5 to every person that's, that has one of those grifter stories. So it's not an either or thing. Here's, here's one last thing I'll, I'll say to Hannah is that if you find yourself feeling like you're kind of maybe taken advantage of or being played by people that aren't truthful, it also could be an indicator that you might be giving yourself away too easily mm-hmm. without, without, earn, without requiring people to earn your trust and respect. So it's sort of like, let's take going out on a first date. If some guy meets a girl that he likes and on the first date he takes her out to like a five-star restaurant and drops $500 on her, I would say, dude, you should make her earn that. Hmm. And if there's any woman out there that's like, oh, how dare you? I repeat myself, dude, you should make her earn that. If that's your wife and she has your back and she's proven to you that she loves you and she'll be with you even when you're extremely difficult to deal with, Taking her out to a five-star restaurant? Yeah, that's a good idea. For the first date, you don't even know this person. Man. You know what I mean? You're laying down a really crazy expectation there, too. (laughs) And you're setting yourself up to be very bitter and very hurt if at the end of that date, she's like, yeah, I don't think I want to do this again. What? But I gave you so much of me. You're supposed to go home with me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and so I, I think sometimes what leads to that frustration is, we're being very forthcoming with other people. We're telling them about all our vulnerabilities. We're telling them about our intentions. We're sharing the fullness of our lives. And then when they're not being straight with us, it hurts all the more because it's like, you're not only not being truthful, but it's it has such a heavy consequence because I invest it myself. So don't be jaded, but be discerning. And when you talk with people Pay attention to how much of themselves they're sharing with you. Pay attention to how much they're investing in their relationship with you Mm -hmm. and and make sure that you are not over investing your time, your energy and your resources into the relationship in a way that's not being reciprocated very early on. Yeah. You know, the uh, assuming the best of people like you helped me actually get there, Milburn, because when we were living in Ohio, Mm -hmm. I remember I had a conversation with them where I'm like, hey, man, I don't know what it is, but like there are, there's something stilting me from like having good interactions with people and, uh, having a deeper relationship with people. And, you know, I'm like going like, you know, some people look at me like I got two heads and I'm like, what the hell? Like, why are they looking at me like this? And Josh is like, he's like, I can, I can tell you a reason why I'm like, why? And he was like, because you question people's intent. Mm. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Like I'm constantly questioning people's intent. It makes me miserable when I do it and I still do it now. I, I, I'm much, much better and I've deprogrammed myself because I used to like Ryan, uh, used to as well. Um, it was like the default setting. Yes. And my default setting was making me miserable. Yeah. Well, I have two choices, continue with the misery or reset my default setting. Yes. Amen. Kapil Gupta says people always default to their defaults. Mm. So the, op- uh, the opportunity then is for me to change what that default is. Yeah. And it's no longer a default for me. It still pops up from time of to course. time. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's maybe 1% of what it used to be. It yeah. was the norm. Yeah. Let's end with a qu- question about death. from Kevin. <laughs> Man. Okay. 
All right. Uh, Kevin's question about death is this. My most tense relationship is with money and people. What should we do regarding end-of-life arrangements for our mother when she has no savings and no assets? She only wants a cremation, but all expenses regarding that and settlement of her estate will fall to us, her children. Let me start with this. So what? How long did your mother take care of you? And how much money did she spend on you? And now we're worried about a cremation, which costs what? $160 or it's free from the state. Although here's what I'll say. You're not obligated to do anything. Now you're saying Kevin in your question here that what should we do? You don't have to do anything. You're saying that the settlement of her estate will fall on you if you allow it to fall on you. Mm. Right. But you don't have to, you can walk away from this whole thing. Well, the government take it all. Why do you want to walk away from your mother, right? Yeah. And so, end of life, just be so grateful. God. I mean, I write about my mom. This is like the last time I'm ever going to write about her in this sort of depth because I've, I've, I've uh, sort of uh, tilled that garden enough at this point. I wrote a novel about it. I wrote about in everything that remains. And I wrote a, a lot about her. Like, she wanted to write this memoir called X-Rated, ex because she was a ex-nun, ex-stewardess, ex-wife, etc. And uh, I write about her sexual escapades with um, Jim Brown and Mr. T in the book <laughs> as well. Um, and, and, you know, so I've, I've gotten everything out there, but my God, if I could have one more month with her mm. to take care of her, I, I, I'd give you a million dollars. And I don't have a million dollars, but I'd find a way. I, it's, I wouldn't go into debt for anything else, but I'd go into debt for that. I contribute to that GoFundMe. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. here's the thing. All we have is now. There is no future. There is no past. Even when we experience the past, it's through memories in the present. Yeah. It, whenever we experience the future, it's of anticipation in the present moment. And so all you have is right now. So yes, your mother's going to die. And so are you. And so am I. And so is TK. Ryan might live forever. I'm not sure. <laughs> but the rest of us are mere mortals. I did break my back and I am whole still. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So here's the thing. Yeah. Yes, your mother is going to die. And instead of worrying about how am I going to pay for cremation and handle a little bit of administrative paperwork? Yeah, man. How can I be grateful? Not in a prescriptive way, but what what circumstances would need to arise in order for gratitude to arise in me? Mm. Yeah. This this leads back to our earlier discussion on like traffic and, and giving other people the benefit of a doubt that they have a story. You know, it's, it's like the old saying goes that we tend to judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge others by their actions. Mm. So when I cut someone off on the freeway, it's because I'm late for work. When someone else cuts me off on the freeway, they're just a jerk. Mm. Right. Um, for me, I judge myself by my story. For the other person, I judge them simply by the observable behavior. And and the way to overcome that is give other people the benefit of a doubt of having a story. Your mother has a story. What what you're looking at right now is the outcome of her life. Financially, her life did not end with enough money to make the question of burying her an easy matter. But why did, why did she get there? 
There are things that maybe she was never taught, things that maybe she didn't know. There might have been opportunities that your mother had to make a lot more money, but it would have required her to compromise her own convictions about how she might have needed to be there for you guys. I don't know her story, mm-hmm. but give her the benefit of a doubt of knowing of, of, of knowing that she has one. Secondly, I would say me personally, I'll just be opinionated here. I wholeheartedly endorse your desire to bury your mother with honor. I think that's the right thing to do, man. That's, that, that's just me. I have an opinion about it. I think it's the right thing to do. I think you should yeah. bury your mother with honor. And, and I think you should honor your own constraints and not try to pretend like you're capable of doing more for her than you can. But within the realm of whatever is possible for you, I think you will feel a lot better when it's all said and done if you bury her with honor. The last thing I'll say is it sounds to me like you've kind of already made up your mind to do that. But where you're struggling is that it's just an incredibly frustrating situation to be in. And I want to honor that frustration. My father's a pastor and I've sat beside him a number of times doing bereavement counseling or helping families plan funerals. And I had no idea how expensive it can be to bury our loved ones. Mm. I had no idea that that was even a financial issue. I just thought it was an emotional issue. And unfortunately, you don't get to take a sabbatical and then come back and bury someone when they die. Mm -hmm. You have to deal with some very hard financial questions at the height of one of the most challenging emotional experiences you'll ever have. And so your frustration is understandable. And I would say, give yourself some grace with that. Give yourself some grace with the frustrations. You're not a bad person for having the thoughts that you have. It's understandable. And what I would try to do is I would try to use this as motivation to set the next generation of people up in your family for success by putting things in place so that when, not if this happens to you, yes, your loved ones will have an easier time burying you than what you're having burying your mother. And that way you can honor your mother by paying it forward and using the investment she made in your life to make it easier for the next generation. Mm. Those will be my thoughts. Yeah. If Ryan and I were to die today, getting hit by a bus, our our affairs are in order Mm -hmm. in a way that, I mean, you can always do something else or whatever. But in fact, if you go, I think it's theminimalists.com slash death. In fact, put a link to that in the show notes if you don't mind, Sean. There's a article there called Scared to Death of Death. The reasons we, we don't even talk about these things is because in some families and in our culture, you know, we, we don't value death the way that other cultures do. Uh, it's, in many cultures, death is simply a part of the living experience. It's the, the terminus, right? Mm-hmm. We value birth in our culture, but for some reason, and we talk about birth all the time and, oh, congratulations, you're pregnant, whatever, but, oh, wow, things are wrapping up here. Yeah. This is the final chapter. And <laughs> we, we don't, I, I get the, the sentiment here. We don't want to be the burden, as, as TK illustrated, to other people as well. So for future generations, you know, if, if I were to die, my will says exactly what I would like, although it lays out in there, I don't really care what you do with my body. In fact, in the will, it says that, you can, that Ryan can use my head as a soccer ball. Which I will be doing. <laughs> <laughs> and they could, and that Bex can shoot me out of a cannon, <laughs> and because I wanted to add some levity into yeah. this, you know, because it, I understand how difficult it is, and yeah, I have life insurance so that uh, my family's taken care of. I have key man insurance for our business so that Ryan's taken care of. Anything happens to me, and, and so um, these are considerations we need to make when we're living, yeah, not when things are wrapping up, yeah. Mm. And that way we make these considerations so we don't have to continue to worry about it. There's no more psychological burden for me. Right. 
Yeah. I know that's already there. And all the people have the paperwork they need. We're, we're good to go. Yeah. Kevin, you can't bury resentment. Woo. You can only let it go. Yes. Wow. That is so good. I want to wrap up here by acknowledging TK Coleman. We, uh, I think this is one of our longest podcasts we've ever done. It's definitely in the top two or three. Yeah. I just like when the big three gets back together. You That's know? right. This is my second favorite big three. What, what's our NBA analysis? Wait, wait a minute. I mean, the Who, first... Stockton, Malone, Hornacek, okay, obviously. Okay, okay, right? Dibs on okay. Hornacek. That, that, now, he's fair. Hornacek. That's oh. racist. <laughs> <laughs> we all know TK's problem. I like to think of myself as race fool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a callback to our first film, by the yeah. way. <laughs> We, we always manage to end on a fantastic oh note. Oh, my God. <laughs> we're in this new studio. Patrons, we're going to do part four of the, the studio tour real soon. We've got some brand new lights in here. We had Evan Cox come in and set up the lighting for us. Jordan's been doing a great job with that. We had the folks at LA Sound Panel. Shout out to them. Do these custom sound panels all around. It's behind this beautiful wrapping paper that you see if you're one of the true fans or VIPs. We have some artwork. Beulah is making some amazing artwork we have some other things that are happening just for you the patrons we want to thank you for that you are making this possible this beautiful yeah. new space will oh be my god yeah revealed to you very soon you can check out tk coleman twitter instagram we'll put a link to those in the show notes his show is called revolution of one and let's end this episode since it's christmas in july with a little <laughs> justin bieber here's christmas love I got your love this Christmas time When the snow's on the ground And it's freezing outside I got your love this Christmas On every list I've ever sent You're the gift I love the best So deck the halls and all the rest You warm me up With your Christmas love Hey angel in the snow I'm under the mistletoe You are the one You're my very own Christmas love Tell Santa I'm cool this year My present is standing right here Thank God above For my very own Christmas love